everybody. Welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, epilogue by epilogue. I'm your host and guy who keeps leaving dolls around your house. And this is my co-host, Scott, who has to sing I'm a Little Teapot every time he's unfair to Taylor. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. I hope I hope you guys enjoy my singing because uh, I'm going to be doing a lot of it. Doing a lot of it yep. this if if that was a rule from the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> we would have much less five star reviews. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But Scott, you you've never been unfair to Taylor. Oh in yeah, my estimation. You're right. You're right. We yeah. are the right ones here. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, anyway, this is the podcast where, for the final time, you, a worm expert, guide me, a first time reader, through Wildbo's world of superheroes, supervillains, and everything in between, as we inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. It's going to the end now. Uh, this yeah. week, Matt, it's all over but the crying. We are here to finish Worm. It's time for the epilogue. It's time for Teneral. And uh, this is it. It comes down to these these six chapters. And uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. We, we wrap up the story. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I got I got a sense um, last, uh, you know, last week that your your expectation of the epilogue was that it was going to be just you know a little a little light light uh uh touching on some things maybe um i didn't get the sense that you um were expecting this quite as much meat uh to be delivered and and this this many things to happen um and this much kind of new new stuff to be brought up uh so, so yeah what would you feel about that yeah um you know i think authors use epilogues for different things and and a, a lot of times epilogues are just this is just all the dangling threads we had that i need to tie up in a nice neat bow before i end my book but that is not how wild bow approaches epilogues this is another arc in the story um an important arc in the story and and this moves beyond just taylor's story to go forward with everyone else and it's it's really good it's really good um i think there are we're going to talk about them as we go but there are distinct themes to each one of these interludes and they tie together to taylor's story really nicely and we we move into this final chapter of the final arc in this really nice way where everything else is kind of we've moved forward everything else and then we're just going to take one last look at our at our girl yeah, it's really satisfying and I think necessary because if the story really did end at the end of arc 30, uh, I, I feel like people would uh, maybe not recommend this story so much. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty crushing, heart-wrenching, devastating ending. And, and this kind of gives you a little bit of silver lining, gives you a, a sense of, of hope for a better tomorrow, perhaps. And, um, and again, gives you that that uh touch base with taylor and and hopefully you know hopefully she's okay yeah yeah i think it's a it's a fitting end to a great story so so let's uh let's get into it yeah all right um yeah so so first of all some some announcements um for the next couple of weeks uh the schedule is going to be different we're taking next week off uh due to christmas um christmas break and then the following week, we're going to do our fourth mailbag episode. Um, is that the same? Are we going to be doing the Word of God episode with the mailbag? Yeah, we're gonna we're yeah. gonna pack all, package all that at into one episode. Um, basically, I think how we're doing the Word of God episode. We've we've explained this before, but maybe not well. Um, I'm gonna basically rely on you to 
curate for me. <laughs> um, so you're going to go through and pick some stuff that you think is worth me hearing about. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff. I think we're going to we're going to go through my final open speculations and see if any of those things are closed by word of God stuff. But we're not going to spend up a, a lot of time. We're not going to go through all of it. Um, and we're going to talk about how we feel about extemporaneous information in general and, and what value it has to the story and what value it doesn't. Um, and yeah. then, and then we're going to do a mailbag. Yeah. And I welcome you guys, you know, in, in the course of the mailbag to give us, um, your, your thoughts on, on word of God stuff that may not be widely known or just that you think I may not know about. Um, I, I, I think I know almost all of the existent, um, metatextual information. Actually, I just, um, um, have obviously been keeping it under wraps. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk on stuff like PRT quest, uh, the deleted chapter, um, the secret uses of certain people's powers, um, um, who, you know, reveal the Scott who the sleeper is obviously, which is something <laughs> that, um, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, just remind me, um, Remind me of the things that I need to be telling Scott. Um, yeah, and and, and yeah. start sending your questions in. Um, we've yeah. got we've got two whole weeks to collect them, so we're we're expecting a lot. We're going to try to answer as many of them as we can. Um, so send them if you want to send them via email. You can send them to gotwormpod at gmail dot com. Please put mailbag number four in the subject line, or you can ask them via the Reddit thread that this podcast is in over on uh, reddit dot com slash r slash parahumans. And uh, please put mailbag number four somewhere in your post as well so we can easily easily search for that. And yeah, send your questions. You can ask basically anything at this point. Um, anything, any of Worm is fair game. It, what do you want to know? We'll try to answer it the best we can. Yeah. So speaking of comments and questions, I think we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about any of the Reddit comments this week because we're so close to the mailbag. Um, there were definitely some really good ones this last week. I might look yeah. back around and talk about on mailbag actually. The thread was uh, much bigger than it normally is. There's There was yeah. a lot of back and forth conversation. I mean, it's a big, important arc, so you kind of expect that. Um, but it was good to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was really enjoyable. So yeah, onto the uh, onto the epilogues. Uh, yeah, so we cold open on our favorite character, Jessica Yamada, in a therapy session with an unnamed girl. The girl is a tough nut to crack. They talk elliptically about the value and use of silence with Yamada pointing out that for a silence to be meaningful, it has to be embedded in a context of meaningful speech. Yeah, and I don't know if it's uh, the nerd in me or just the guy that loves words or what, um, but I found this uh, this conversation between the two of them like infinitely engaging. We came off this giant action-packed battle uh, in the last arc, and we start our epilogue talking about the importance of silence. And it's kind of jarring in a cool way. And, and it's especially ir- ironic given... The fact that our protagonist barely said a single line of dialogue throughout the entirety of the climax of the story, um, especially more so when you think that the, the, the last time we left Taylor was with this conversation with Contessa, where Contessa asks her a question and she answers it with silence. And then Contessa says, I've got my answer. So mm-hmm. it, we're kind of playing with this idea of silence and we're and we're we're using where we left off to kind of explore that here right here in the start of the epilogue. Yeah, yeah, um, I think that's really cool. Uh, yeah, so, so this the the girl manages to threaten Jessica with death for insinuating that she's human, um, and I think here 
like on some level, there's an intentional fake out here where you're supposed to maybe think that this might be Taylor, at least for a, a little bit, because we don't find out this person's name. We know it's we know it's a young woman. We know she's really violent. Um, and the, the characterization is nothing like Taylor. Um, but you could still plausibly think that this is like the violent and inhuman queen administrator being interviewed by, by Jessica. Yeah, um, I think, I think you're right. Um, for whatever reason that didn't really occur to me as I was reading it, I think I was just like, I, I went to who is this girl and not, is this Taylor? Um, but I, I do, I do agree that in the very, at least the very short term at the beginning here, we're, we're setting this up to think that possibly maybe this is our girl. Yeah, I think Almost all of the uh, epilogues have a moment where um, a mysterious female figure walks in from out of frame and you're meant to, or at least I, out of my desperation for Taylor to be alive, um, thought maybe this was Taylor coming into the scene. Um, but it never is until it is. Yeah. So um, so that's that's what I think. I feel like this is intentional, but uh, you know, at the very least, this character is a very strong parallel to Taylor because this is the other queen yeah. Um, and she's uh, having a conversation that Taylor could very well have in, in a certain sense. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. But yeah, it's only when we really we find out who this really is when uh, she pulls out one of her spirits to heat up her drink and turn it into mead. And then we're sure, yeah, this is not Taylor. This is classic Wenye. Who has, has clearly captured the uh, uh, Jesus's shard, Matt. Yeah, apparently. Right. That's turning right. water yeah. into Okay, mead is not wine, but you know it's d- yeah. d- details. Yeah, know? that's. I think that's canon. I think that's in the Word of God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the fairy queen finally answers Yamada's question about who she is, one of the strongest beings on the planet and a murderer. In what sense? The therapist asked. One who has murdered, or one who murders. Same thing, isn't it? You don't leave that behind you. Nobody lets you. Uh, and. Matt, there have been so many lines that I've liked in this book. Um, so many one-two punches of lines, and this might be some of my favorite here. Um, I love th- this. This does so many things. It, it serves to get immediately at the core of both Yamada's purpose and, and what she's trying to get out of the Fairy Queen, but also the the Fairy Queen's central concern as well. Like this idea that I can't get better because no one is going to let me because. I'm always going to be this identity to people. I can, I cannot achieve a new identity. And, um, I, I like this because it, it, it ties back to Taylor. It ties back to this idea that we talked about. It's like, once you've murdered someone, once you've crossed that line, it changes you. It not only changes you, but it changes people's perception of you. And it is not something that is easy to walk back from. And we're seeing that right here as we, as we think about Taylor and the decisions that she's made. Yeah, I love that because because basically what Yamada is getting at is like it, it doesn't matter so much what other people will or will not let you get away with. What matters is the way you see yourself, and yeah. and that's what she's trying to to get at. Um, and of course, um, you know, th- there's a reason for this. She's trying to understand why Glassie chose not to help Sion when she very well could have, and she could have ruined everything and doomed us all. Um, so nobody understands why she didn't. And they need to understand that so they can ex- understand where she stands now. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's ironic that I, I think in the, in the middle of our, our discussion last week, I asked you this very same question. I asked you, I was trying to understand why did, uh, Glastic do this? Why did she not help Sion? We, we were always kind of led to believe that if it really came down to it, if she ever actually felt that Sion was under real danger, that she would jump in and switch sides and help him. But she doesn't. She very specifically stands down here. And I was, I was like, Matt, why is she, why is she doing this? And you, of course, couldn't answer. Um, you, yeah. you had your, your characteristic straight face and refused to say, <laughs> I think you just went, I don't, I don't know, Scott. I don't know. Um, but we do, we do learn this here now. And, and I think it's better than, than what I, I, could have really thought it's great yeah yeah it, it it makes perfect sense in fact it's it's along the lines of i think what you what you assume but in a lot more detail and a lot more it, it kind of makes plastic winnie more of a deeper character actually to understand yeah. this yeah yeah so but but for now the girl doesn't like these questions she asks yamada how she wants to die and encourages her to beg for mercy yamada seems to give her pause by calling her Ciara. Yeah, and and here at the end of the story in our epilogues, we are back to the importance of names as identity. So Ciara is in a place where she's abandoned this fairy queen moniker. She has cast that mask off in in shame, and she hasn't picked a new identity yet. She doesn't know who she is, and, and Yamada is trying to drill down to the core of who she is, to the core of her identity, to whatever is left of her and she does it via her favorite method names and this is such a great way to complete that circle of of how how yamada deals with capes and their identity crisis yeah right it's wonderful this is coming at the end to sort of punctuate all the the previous times that we saw her do this with other characters right yeah um so here ciara backs down admitting that her threatening display is vulgar and tells yamada she doesn't know why she didn't step in yeah, and I love the detail of this because uh, as she's backing down, she's dismissing the shadows that she was threatening Yamada with. But but as she does that, she kind of ticks them off, their names and their titles. And we see here that she's kind of using these shadows as an extension of herself and what she's feeling. She she calls it uh, Ampelos, the ill-fated, Daimonus, the lost. And this is kind of getting a window into how, how Ciara is feeling right now. And yeah, I think that's, that's cool. really great. Yeah, I didn't catch that, but I, I think you're right there. Um, so yeah, now really pushing her luck, Yamada ventures that the reason Ciara made this decision is that she is now an adolescent, not a child, but not an adult either. Someone in arrested development or someone whose development was arrested at childhood until recently and has only now resumed. Um, so in other words, she saw her father figure falter and show his vulnerability and then she could no longer idolize and idealize him. Um, and Yamada goes on to explain, for the adolescent, the greatest, most defining challenge is to find themselves, to seek out identity. For the unpowered youth, it's often a question of what clique they fit in, what clothes they wear, how they express themselves, and what path they want to step forward on in terms of possible careers. For powered youth, it's about all of the things I just mentioned, as well as the villain and hero labels, their place on the team, their place in family, the bonds they form. These are questions you are now asking yourself. Am I wrong? And uh, I, I labeled this uh, the whole book in one paragraph. Txt. <laughs> right, and and I think I think on my 
when I was tweeting this, I think I just copy pasted this whole thing and just wrote worm because <laughs> this is yeah. just, this is just the book. And it is, it's such a perfect encapsulation of the book as a whole. And, and, and I think why this might be my, my favorite interlude of the epilogue, except for maybe the last one. I think it's, it's doing, it's, it's being an epilogue here. It's, 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 it's recapping the entire story and it's showing what, what can be beyond that. And I love, I love how like this worm is a story about identity, is a story about trauma, about bullying. It's secretly, or maybe not so secretly, a coming of age story too. It's Taylor transitioning from, uh, from this adolescence into a state of adulthood. And that comes with all these things, all these things that are just, uh, that are not just things that normal adolescents have to go through, but all that amped up with all this, this superhero stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's what makes it relatable to us is that it's, it's, it's this way of fiction being a way of, um, taking, you know, illustrating the general with the specific, you have this, this highly dramatized superhero story, but what it's really doing is it's speaking to the parts of us that struggle with identity and, and struggle with family and struggle with, you know, being a part of a team or being a part of a clique when we're growing up and when we're coming of age. So it, it, it speaks to our mundane concerns through these elevated superhero metaphors. Yeah. And then people can shoot lasers. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really great. It, it is, it, it is, it is, I think the quintessence of why genre fiction works really well, because I think it can play in these, um, huge like dramatic crazy superhero type things while at the same time being at its core a a very relatable simple story and that's why i think genre fiction can do so well and why when it's at its best it's some of the the best storytelling in my opinion yeah i think so so at this point uh ciara insinuates something about yamada's bosses being unhappy and Yabata mentions that she doesn't have any bosses. The PRT is done, and she's really just helping. Uh-huh. Somebody knocks at the door now. Um, and the concern on the woman's face, Sierra noted, was more than it had been when she'd been threatened with her own imminent death. <laughs> what a badass. Yeah. I, I like this so much because, like, we have been in Yamada's head before. We know, we know that in these moments, she is not unafraid. She is, yeah. she is actually terrified. She's just really fucking good at hiding how terrified she is. We know this and we're getting to yeah. see this now from an outside angle. Yeah. I also like the fact that she's so irritated at like her professionalism being compromised by being interrupted. And I wonder, I'm not sure, but I wonder if this is a three beat of instances of Jessica Yamada being uh, put in a position where she has to, you know, behave unprofessionally and it, it being like, worse than being threatened with death yeah i think you're right i think it is and it's it's really cool because we've gotten like i said we've gotten to be in this character and we we know what they're thinking and how they're processing this and 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 i i like that that beat about how she's really mad at chevalier here for interrupting because she's trying to demonstrate to sierra that she is the most important person to her right now that this is so important and 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 i am with you and i am here for you and being interrupted takes away from that yeah absolutely um yeah so as as chevalier uh sticks his head in the door we get a glimpse of what the world looks like to the fairy queen the implicit force of any parahuman she looks at projected as a kind of vision it's overwhelming 
yeah, it's a very cool like additional twist on on the the power that we know that Sierra has. And it's also a really great way of visualizing kind of exactly why she she might have turned out the way she did. When when all you can see when you look at people is the physical representation of their powers, it kind of makes sense that you stop seeing them as people as humans and you start just seeing the shard side of them and and that's the the fairy becomes more important than the human. Yeah, it must have been really, really uh, even worse for her that she was in the birdcage for, for years now and was just surrounded by capes exclusively. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. So Yamada begrudgingly gives Chevalier one minute every time. Ciara uses one of her shadows to eavesdrop as he explains that he needs to make decisions about who gets amnesty. And Ciara is a sort of crux, a sort of prototype case. If she doesn't get amnesty, then amnesty isn't universal and then there'll be doubt. Yeah, and that's that's devastating um, to everything that they're trying to do here. And and I like that that one of the the central ideas around the, the epilogue as a whole is that life goes on, and just because you've removed a threat does not mean everything is fixed. Just because you've saved the world does not mean the world is fixed. And the, their situation is perilous, and they have a real opportunity here, and they need to make sure they get off on the right foot. And and suddenly our girl Sierra finds herself at the very center of that whole conflict. Yeah, yeah. And this is all very unexpected, I think. I don't think I, don't think I would have guessed from the end of the story that, oh yeah, the first uh, epilogue is going to be classic Wendy. No, not at all. <laughs> Yamada asks about Kepri because she cares um, but Chevalier says she wouldn't like the answer. And um, I'm sad again. Yeah. But would we so like later, the answer, maybe? I don't know. Maybe? I don't know. Would we? I don't know. So later, <laughs> she watches a ceremony. Legend and Chevalier give their speeches in the shadow of a New York being rebuilt. Buildings are being thrown up to surround the portals that Kepri created in her final jaunt. Legend speaks about how the current piece is fragile and things will be worse when it breaks. But this is everyone's second chance, even the people who might not deserve one. And in the spirit of second chances, they introduce Valkyrie. And here is the continuation of, of that thread that we were just talking about. The idea that it's now six months into the future. Um, peace has been achieved, but it's starting to fade. It's, we, they, our characters know it's temporary, but we have a chance here. We have a chance to do better, to build something better. And this is not the first time that our characters have talked about doing this, have, have, have talked about building an organization, a group of capes that is better than any that has existed before. Taylor wanted to do it. Taylor wanted to tear down the corrupt protectorate and build something better. Chevalier wanted the new and improved protectorate. And things just kind of always worked against them in these cases. Like that, there was just too much crazy bad shit happening to ever actually build an organization from the ground up. And, and now they have this opportunity and, as we said, the center of it is is the the new Valkyrie. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's really cool. It's it's fun. Um, yeah, so her costume is gold and sky blue, and her body is older now, unfamiliar. But she likes her wings. Everybody knows who she is, though, because you know her the appearance of her spirits is the same as it was before. And as she thinks about uh, Valkyrie, warrior women who guided the souls of dead warriors to the afterlife. These spirits were her warriors, not mere shadows. Yeah, it's a, it's a great name. It's very thematically fitting. Really cool costume. I imagine her looking super badass. Um, she's she's put on a new mask. She she is is not fairy queen. She's not Sierra. She's Valkyrie now. But uh, but it's it's hopeful. It's hope for the future. And yeah. 
I, I, the big, the big, I think, theme of this chapter is maturity and, and growth. And we see here that, that she has now allowed herself to age. <laughs> and that's a, that's a big deal. That's like, it's, it's a, it's the idea of growing up made literal <laughs> as, yeah. as the best kind of science fiction type stories can do can take this abstract idea and, and make it literal to show, to kind of explore the metaphor. Um, but it's, it's great. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I like this idea that she's kind of embraced the, the spirits as, as her warriors, not mere shadows that she's kind of recontextualized yeah. what her power is in, in a certain way. Yeah. So Miss Militia invites her to dinner, but she silently declines and willing to trust herself to speak normally. And she thinks that uh, she was half again as tall as she had been, fit, glittering in armor, carrying a weapon and shield, and she felt more fragile than she had in a long time. Yeah, I think this is really great. And I think this ties back into that that central idea that we were talking about, that that idea of second chances, that idea of you can save the world, but that doesn't mean everything's fixed. You can make a decision. You can decide you want to grow up. You want to be that adult. You want to be that mature new person on that good path. Just because you've decided to walk down that path doesn't mean that that road isn't going to be a pain in the fucking ass. And I think that's what this is saying here. Like, like she's not, she's not there yet and it's going to be tough and she's fragile and she's, um, 10, 10 in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. She's, she's, uh, she's, you know, she transitioned from a, a, she's transitioning from a child into an adolescent. She's a, she's soft. She's feeling fragile and vulnerable, like you said. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that she moves into, um, you know, she, she feels that she needs to move away from people because she feels herself kind of losing control of her, of her shard in, in a certain way. So she hides in an unfinished cafeteria. And I, I find that to be almost a subconscious, uh, callback to, to the, to the big, pivotal cafeteria scene which reminds us of high school and it kind of puts us in the frame of mind of like yeah this is a 30 something year old but in a sense she's a she's an adolescent and she's she's not sure who she is anymore and that's a very vulnerable uh state even for someone who is a fearsome supervillain because she can't fall back on that that mask anymore yeah i i, I like yeah I, the cafeteria thing is a great poll because you're absolutely right not only in the story do important things happen during lunchtime <laughs> in cafeterias, but right. it is a very juvenile type place. It is a place where adolescents exist a lot. And yeah. she's in this, this kind of trying to find her way to maturity. And, and yeah, of course you're going to go hang out in the cafeteria and, yeah. meet, and meet up with your monster buddies. Yeah. Meet up with your monster buddies. Cause Riley and Nilbog show up unexpectedly. The three monsters discuss their problems. Riley is visiting Nilbog for her weekly dose of sanity uh, and of course, Valkyrie understands what, what she means there. Uh, not, not sanity, but rather her weekly dose of insanity. And it's comforting <laughs> taking a break from the overwhelming normalcy of, of the life that she's trying on. Yeah. And I, I love this as a continuation of everything we've been talking about. These guys were all monsters at one point and they're trying to find their place in the new world and they're trying to mature too. Like Riley herself is, is someone that's going through this state of like trying to grow up like she like Valkyrie had artificially like de-aged herself and and physically made herself younger appear younger than she is and she's also trying to transition to this this maturity this adulthood and I like this idea that it continues 
the addiction metaphor we've been talking about here because there's this this real idea that bone saw or 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 you could even say the shard is not going anywhere it's always going right. to be part of you you're always an alcoholic even if you're uh, even if you're a recovering alcoholic you're always going to have the shard it's always going to be part of you and if you don't confront that if you don't deal with that if you don't find a release valve for that behavior that's not destructive then it will consume you and and that's kind of what we're seeing here yeah i think this is an idea we're going to call upon later but um it's something something valkyrie says is, is you know she's she doesn't she's not comfortable with the idea of being a human she can't be a human in fact um right she uh she she has to synthesize this shard and and a human self and find some kind of compromise that both sides can live with. Uh, and, and, and that does not look like just denying the shard. Uh, there's, there's no way that can work. We know we've seen enough characters in this story and, and how they react to their shards to know that that's not a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and before she leaves though, she tries to merge one of her ghosts into Nilbog's helper. It doesn't work, but she wonders if it might. And it finishes with, she felt better now, less incomplete. Her other half was content with this line of thinking. She just wasn't sure where she'd take it. Yeah, so it's this interesting way we like, I think this is a very hopeful chapter. We have a person finding themselves, but we leave it with a little bit of, of unease as well um, because she's found that what she thinks is maybe a combination of, of what is appeasing to both her and the shard. Maybe there's a way to bring back to life the people that died, which is crazy. Um, but we don't know really what that means and where that's going to go. Is that going to lead her on a good path or is that going to lead her down a, a bad path? And I, I like that we're left with this uneasiness. It's like a hopeful uneasiness. Yeah, it is foreboding because we, we kind of know like the purpose of her shard is to collect the souls or, you know, to, to collect the shards at the end of the cycle. And now the cycle can't end. So her shard is kind of, it's interesting. I just, it's kind of just occurring to me that her, her her shard is almost trying to find a new purpose, the same way she is as a person. Yeah, yeah. Maybe instead of collecting the shards of the dead, it, that new purpose can be bring those dead back. Which yeah, yeah. who knows? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this goes this goes into what you were talking about, though. Like, there's this this train of thought throughout this that she's trying to find a role for herself, and she specifically says she cannot be human. She can't be Ciara. She specifically says she does not want to be inhuman. She can't be Glastig. She can't be the Fairy Queen. So she try. So what she wants to find is, is something else. And and what she finds is parahuman. And I think she means that both in parahuman as the name for capes in this world, but also as in the literal name, uh, the literal definition of the word that it is is not quite human. Is beside human. Um, maybe slightly above human. And I think that feeds into what we were talking about with the shard, that, that you are not just a human, you are more than that. And you need to recognize that and not ignore it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we, we wrap up that very interesting and kind of unexpected first chapter of this arc and move on to the second epilogue where new character Nero holds court in his office. His costume is very try-hard, uh, he addresses the new slaves brought in to work in his lumberyard, and he pretty quickly sketches out his hellish prison camp system where you earn company store tokens for good work 
which can be exchanged for necessities. But of course, there's no good faith in how the tokens are handed out. So everyone is a thief by default. An old man stands up to him uh, and Nero decides that the guy's niece and nephew will be punished for his insolence. And he fabricates a tattoo stylus with his power to give the teenagers a big warning tattoo. So my reaction here was, uh, behold your cape feudalism, cauldron. Yeah, yeah. That plan's really working out, isn't it? Just put put capes in charge and everything will go great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is really interesting because I think, like we said, the first chapter is this this examination of rebuilding and, and rebirth and growth. And it's, it's largely positive. Like the cities are rebuilding the, the, the remaining protectorate have formed the wardens and they've got the super powerful Cape and Valkyrie on their side now. And, and yeah, it's, it's tenuous and we can see problems down the road, but it's very hopeful. And then we switch from that to almost the flip side of things here. We now see instead of humanity at its best, we now see humanity at its worst. People, using this system of power to greedily benefit themselves and their friends at the, at the uh, expense of everyone else. And yeah. it's kind of jarring almost. Yeah. We're like, Oh, this, this is the depressing worm stuff we're used to. Yeah. Humans suck. Um, Here we go. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, as I was reading this, Matt, I couldn't help but be reminded of a certain warlord who used, who like ruled over Brockton Bay with a, a similar, Albeit fairly, you know, less corrupt and cruel tactic, you know. I don't know, Scott. That's it. a pretty, that's a pretty unfair comparison. I'm a little teapot, <laughs> short and stout. Oh, it's just just mute your mic. I'll continue. Uh, so, so he sends all the prisoners out for a light beating. I just love that term. Uh, and goes to sit in his chair. And as he sits down, he finds himself bound in chains, almost strangling by a chain around his throat. Uh, he's in a bad spot, and a voice warns him not to struggle. So, of course, this is Imp. Um, she's got him in checkmate, and she proceeds to uh, to monologue. And she says, uh, plan was I'd traipse in here, fuck up your shit, leave a calling card, and then leave. Sort of a mo- modus operandus, you know. I'm working on building a rep as a not-assassin, a shit-fucker-upper, if you will. And then uh, later on, she elaborates, uh, what was I saying? Right. Well, I happened to overhear your whole deal, and now I've got a problem. It sounds really, really familiar. I don't know what you mean. Supporting the territory, ruling with a measure of fear. I've seen people go this route. They did it more instinctively. This felt forced right here. Tip me over and pour me out. <laughs> um, so, I'm... I am so glad, Matt, that the text does my job for me here and Uh specifically draws this line back to Taylor. Because if I had just had to do it on my own, I'm I'm sure I would have been immediately yelled at. Uh (laughs) But I think I think this is this gets to what we were talking about when you and I saw Taylor's feudalistic warlord of Brockton Bay thing and said, you know, short term, that's great. But, but long term, this could be problematic because, because Taylor, Taylor's methods worked here because for all her faults, she was actually a, a rather benevolent, fair warlord. She made rules. Y- you followed them. You benefited. You broke them. You were punished, um, sometimes cruelly. Uh, but, but like she ran like with benevolence and, and, 
the problem with this kind of thing is always the long term is what happens when the benevolent benevolent ruler dies and you get someone else in charge who doesn't think that way, who isn't as interested in fairness, who wants to use the system to benefit for themselves. What happens when someone sees the way you, you rule and copies that, except they're not as good of a person as you? And I think that's that's what we were saying with this is it's not that – Taylor in the moment what she was doing was wrong but the consequences of that and we're seeing them here this is this system is cruel and awful and terrible to the, the people that are forced to live under it here yeah it, it's it's just a system that rewards strength too and strength does yeah. not correlate with uh, benevolence um, in, in any way um, especially among capes I would say yeah 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 um, yeah, so Imp is extremely irritated to learn that all of her fish references have been falling flat because she was thinking of Nemo, not Nero. Yeah, and here's where I start laughing and don't stop yeah. until we're done with the uh, with the chapter. Right. So now we introduce um, the uh, heartbroken kids who who come in to help, um, and we just get so many little beats of their characterization, showing them to be. Just horrible little monsters. Uh, no murdering, Juliet, the boy said. No murdering, Imp reiterated as if reciting a phrase she'd said so many times it was routine. <laughs> um, and just, just like establishing, especially in, in contrast to this like, you know, tough, tough guy. You know, the, these these kids are so much scarier than him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the humor continues. She tries a few different villain banter things. And then flickers her power between the attempts so that people forget her false starts. And it's just so hilarious. Yeah, yeah uh, it really is. All of this, all of this is so funny, Matt. And it's so, like, refreshing. Like, we're seeing, just like in Valkyrie last chapter, we're seeing an imp that is, that is changing and trying to change and trying to find a new path for herself. And you get this idea that, like, finally, without this looming threat, without this looming destruction over everyone's head, people are free to breathe and finally free to try to discover themselves. And that's what imp is doing here. And it's of course hilarious because it's the imp and that's what she does, but it's so it's, it makes me so happy. Yeah. It's wonderful to see that this character has arrived at this point, especially because this is, you know, from out of left field, as we've said many times, like this is a character who the first time she's introduced, most people don't like her at all. And then subsequent times she shows up in the story. She's just kind of annoying. Um, and she just really sneaks up to you and then and, and shivs you right in your heart. I see what you did there. Yeah. It's like it's her power. That's right. So they finally terrorize Nero into admitting that it's Teacher feeding him supplies and infrastructure. He adds some more details, telling them that Teacher has a bunch of other people working for him, probably unwitting thralls, actually. Uh, and he also tells her where the drugs are coming from. Now that they've got the information they need, Amp decides to use Floor, one of the heartbroken kids, and she gives a list of rules, starting off with uh, no no drugs, no mentioning of drugs, etc. And Nero starts singing, I'm a little teapot. My boy. Um, so I know how that her, is. So basically her power is this delightful thing where she can put these like uh, case-specific compulsions on you. Um, Samuel added, you make another guy sing John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, and I'm not sure we can get them to stop this time. And yeah, what they say, his name is uh, is my name too. Yeah, me too. I like this though because like they specifically mentioned that the punishment, it's not cruel. Like they could do, she could do terrible stuff to them, but it's enough oh, yeah. to like make everyone around them lose respect for them. So it's like 
it's really effective. <laughs> it's like yeah. you're the leader of this where power is the only thing that matters. And you're saying my little teapot suddenly in front of everyone. Like it's, it's so effective in it's, in it's lack of cruelty. Right. It's, it's mischievousness. It's yeah, impishness, yeah. if you will. Oh, look at that. Yeah. So rule two, no attacking anyone or giving orders to that effect. Uh, and she lets him go and she tells him to tell teacher that she'll stop messing with his plans when he stops, quote, cribbing from someone else's game plan, uh, because to her, it's about legacies. So they depart, and Samuel asks why she's bothering with the Regent dolls, and she says it's because the memorial was destroyed, and she wants to preserve his legacy as well. And and this is this is just beautiful, and legacy is the theme of this chapter, is it, and that's that's what it has become important to Imp, and I think this is just so thematically satisfying for a character like Imp, a, a person whose trauma was related to the fact that nobody noticed her, that no one would ever see her. And, and, and her power is literally to make people forget that she was there. And so her at the end of her road, at the end of her arc is, is not to make people know her, that, that her legacy is important, that, that people know who Imp is. That's not what she wants. She wants people to know who Taylor are, is and, and know who Regent was and and it's other people that are important to her now other people's legacies not her and that shows someone who has moved past their trauma in a way and that's so wonderful yeah yeah it's like she's taking ownership of of her of her whole deal and she's uh yeah. she's moving forward as herself yeah so there's more delightful banter cementing the heartbroken as the scariest group of people on the planet um, who are now Imp's family. <laughs> yeah. And, and like we said, these guys are all terrifying in their own way, but I don't know. I, I left this banter feeling super hopeful because I think it's true that all these kids have, you know, dubious sense of morals and extremely scary powers, but it, we get this feeling that Imp has a pretty good handle on them, that, that she has taken over as this motherly role and is, is doing a very good job of shaping them to become the type of person that she wants them to be, which is thankfully not run around murder people. Later. Right. Yeah. She's uh, she's probably the least evil of the undersiders. Maybe. I don't know. That's <laughs> debatable actually. Uh, yeah, it's debatable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so nearby it sees a flicker of shadow noticing someone watching. She uses her power and sneaks up on the observer and sits down beside shadow stalker. She warns her not to hurt the kids. Shady flips out, of course, uh, and tells her that this is about unfinished regent stuff. And she seems intent on finding out what Imp knows. Yeah, I, I like this a lot. Um, I think this is a pretty great window into the patheticness that is Sophia at the end of this book. And I think this is very kind of thematically fitting because we just talked about how Imp's concern is, is not one of selfishness anymore. Imp's concern is protecting Taylor's legacy, making sure nobody forgets who Regent was. And by contrast, Shadowstalker's main concern here is completely selfish, self-absorbed, tying off loose ends because these people know something about her that doesn't fit with the image that she wants to present to the world. And it's inherently selfish and it's like shitty. And it's, it's like a perfect contrast to what, what Imp is trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um it's it's a great it's a great sort of ending for this character who we don't like at all because we see that she has 
pretty much learned nothing and she's going to be miserable. Yep. Um, yeah. So Shady notices Imp's gold morning badge and says it reminds her of a bullseye because humanity didn't earn a victory. They were puppets, something Shadowstalker specifically doesn't appreciate. She says, uh, and then an Imp kind of needles her and reminds her that this is a, this is a badge that celebrates Taylor, actually, the person who she was so mean to. And it says, uh, in the rest of your years, even if you try, which you won't, you won't make a fraction of the difference she made. You're going to keep living this solitary little hunter-stalker existence, picking off a few bad guys, getting your jollies, and people are never going to wear a badge on their sleeves for you. Yeah, and I think it's great that Imp seems to fundamentally understand Sophia here, that, that even for Sophia, it's all about legacy, but just hers. And she kind of sticks it to her, right? It's like, even if you kill me, and you kill everyone that knows kind of about your soft underbelly uh, that, that you try to hide from people, it doesn't matter because no one is going to remember you. No one is going to care about you. No one is going to think you matter. Congratulations. You have achieved the image of Sophia the Predator. You are the Predator. You are going to stay by yourself and hunt people down. Enjoy being alone and forgotten. And yeah. It's perfect because, because like, like you said, you're absolutely right that, that Sophia had multiple opportunities to put herself back on a path to happiness and of some sort, maybe not perfect happiness, but put herself on a path to where she could address her issues and get to a better place. She had those shots and she continually turned them down. So I don't feel I don't feel bad for her here. Like this is you, you made your bed, Sophia. Yeah. Yeah. This feels like justice. I mean, this is a character who we hated at first and we never really came to like her. And that's, that's fine. Like we came to understand her. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's fair, but we came to understand her as kind of a crappy person. Right. And, uh, she deserves this. Well, it's like, it's like bone saw <laughs> was a monster. Saw her monstrous ways and took steps to right herself. Yeah. Sophia was not as much of a monster, but every opportunity she was given to take those steps, she ignored. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I like Bonesaw more than I like <laughs> Sophia because she at least is trying. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Yeah, because Sophia is entirely in a prison of her own making here. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's one thing I love about these epilogues is, is we get... We're not just getting loose ends tied up with the characters whose epilogue it is. We're getting those loose ends tied up with a number of, of side characters, um, yeah. including, you know, really minor ones. Like, yeah, I mean, we'll see a few later, but like, uh, you know, we see, we see Saint is still with teacher and he's like practically lobotomized. That's just a <laughs> little throwaway thing later. Yep. Um, uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So Amp uses her power and goes back to the kids. She makes Samuel drive and she pulls out a book to read. To further her goal of becoming a cultured supervillain, quote, awesome enough to match up to who the original Regent and Imp were going to be as a pair. And she asks, what are, what are we reading? And Samuel answers, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Gotcha, Imp said, looking down at the book too quickly to catch his smirk. Ha ha ha, cause Nemo. Yeah. Or alternatively, 20,000 leagues under the bay. The story yeah. of your sister, Cherish. Yeah. That too. <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to talk about this for a bit because I think this is really cool. I think the way we leave Imp here is so hopeful and great because back 
when Taylor was about to leave the Undersiders. We had that whole chapter where she got together with Imp and Regent and basically gave them a lesson and was what because she was worried about what they would become who they would become she she was terrified that one of the possible futures for imp is this ruthless professional assassin that kills like willy-nilly and doesn't care about anything or anyone and she was terrified that and, and she was hoping that that would not be what imp would end up as and i love that in here like imp has basically is is in her own way honoring Taylor's legacy more than just going out there and and beating up people who attempt to copy her way of warlording ever would because she's choosing this path of she says no to being that assassin she's I am the path of the professional fuck shitter upper I I am going to be this cultured supervillain that would that would make Regent proud I am carrying forward Taylor's desires and hopes for me without even being conscious that I'm doing it. And I think that like she is honoring Taylor in that, even if she doesn't know it and it's beautiful. Yeah. Right. In fact, I think I feel the most optimistic for her out of, out of everyone, except maybe Rachel, I guess um, maybe a tie. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful, lovely, um, you know, she's, she's got a family now. She's got people who, who, who care about her, which is something that, you know, is, is hard for her because people have a hard time noticing her. Um, she's, she's, she's responsible for, for them even, um, which is, which is one, one better, you know, and she's doing a good job of it apparently. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's wonderful to watch her grow into this, uh, mischievous, you know, imp that she, that she, uh, wants to be. And, the, and it's her path that she's chosen it. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You, you, that, that, that it is her path. Like she, she did not, go down this path because Taylor wanted her to. She, I don't think she fully even understood what Taylor was trying to do with her, the, the path she was trying to push her down. This this is what she has chosen, and it's wonderful, and it's hopeful, and I, I love it so much, and I'm so happy that this is where we leave this character. Well, we'll come back to her in the final one, but this is basically yeah. where we leave this character. Right, yeah, in terms of... Arc. Yeah, yeah arc right now. Yeah. All right, so we move on into the third interlude, and we have here... Colin failing in an attempt to boot up a version of Dragon. And Colin here, he's talking to himself. His voice is raspy. His cybernetic body is falling into disrepair. And he's thinking he's, he's, uh, he's not doing well. He's thinking some, some pretty, uh, some pretty bleak thoughts. Yeah. Everything was connected, but no connection was perfect. There was entropy in all things. In anything, there was a cost, a price to be paid. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this is this is the theme of this one, right? We we've talked about legacy, we've talked about maturity, and then this one to me seems to be uh, the price of the choices you make, the price of the things that you want, the th- the thing you have to pay to get where you want. And the other uh, last chapter was pretty emotional. Um, this one is a fucking roller coaster. <laughs> this is yeah. this goes from oh my god, this is terrible to oh yay to oh no and back. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is amazing. There's, there's a few heart jerker, uh, 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 you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, yes. <laughs> chapters in this arc. Um, and this is, uh, th- this is a major one. Um, it's a real heart jerker. Yeah. Really appreciated getting my heart jerked here. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, and the, the, the writing in the first part of this chapter is, is, uh, especially beautiful, I think. So we have Colin looking down at this, this city that's being constructed 
uh, observing the people's attempts to domesticate a horse-adjacent animal. Um, just love that particular little sci-fi touch there. Uh, and he watches Dragon play with a group of children. Yeah, it's, it is this beautifully touching moment. And like I think in the last two chapters, Wildbo was like trying to paint, you know, a, a realistic version of what uh, the the world is going to look like now, like hope with a tinge of concern to it. And in this, I think he's going full like peace and tranquility. Like like we are going to show that this is almost a utopia for these two characters. And I think it's very intentional because he's demonstrating um, that by, by building up this perfect life, he's demonstrating just how big the pull for dragon is to, to want to reach that heroism and, and that freedom um, to, to be willing to leave all this behind and risk all of this, this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So dragon now climbs up the hill to greet him. And they have some playful banter talking about how he's grown as a person from thinking of himself as Zeus to thinking of himself as Hephaestus. Uh, Colin can't really give her a real smile, though. Something is bothering him. He hasn't been getting his required six minutes of sleep per night. <laughs> I just, how do you not fit in like six minutes? Like, I mean, six hours. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm really busy. But like, yeah, I just can't, I just can't get away for for six minutes i take yeah. i take poops that are longer than that <laughs> um but so anyway moving away from my ridiculous joke um the the, the crazy thing about all this matt is it, if you would have told me at the beginning of this book that the strongest relationship in all of it would be between arms master and an ai i probably would have laughed in your face and and I think that's because, like, I didn't know Colin. I, I didn't know Dragon. And most importantly, I didn't know Wildbow. And I didn't know how Wildbow writes and how he does character. Because this is real. This is powerful. It's quaint. It's impactful. There's there's fun little lines in here, like the, the doofus chits that Colin is talking about he needs to cash in. There's, there's joking banter. There's discussion of, of having children. This is the story leaning hard into this quaint, normal, mundane, but idealized life. And it's, it's beautiful, especially with the knowledge that we have to make a choice to risk this all to, to, to pay the price that this could be the price to everything that, that our characters actually want, or at least yeah. one of our characters. Right. I think it's especially powerful because you've seen Colin become this person. It's not just that we got to know him. It's that we got to know him as he changed into this person who's capable of love and sacrifice and, and sacrifice for another person yeah. uh, who he loves more than himself, which is, you know, is hard to imagine with the, the angry, selfish, you know, fairly bad person we started out with. Yeah. And I think n no quote encapsulates more, more than this one right here where, Dragon says to him, I'm not a princess in need of rescue, Colin. And he says, I know that. I know. Damn it. You saved me. And that, that's Hephaestus. That's not Zeus. That's defiant. That's not arms master. That is a, a fundamental shift in who he is as a person. Yeah. The old one never would have admitted that, never would have said that. And it's awesome. It's, it's great getting to see him on this journey. And he's gotten to a point where, yeah, he is willing to make this choice. He is willing 
to give up their love for what she wants. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this vulnerability this is so touching. Yeah. Yeah. So he admits that he hasn't made progress in undoing the changes teacher made to Dragon's Code. And he asks if she could be okay if he never manages to fix it. Could she handle not being a hero and just living this domestic life? And, uh, you know, after a fashion, she admits that she, she can't really. She kind of hedges away from admitting it, really, but she, she, she can't. Uh, and he tells her that he'll put, more, he'll put one more night of effort in, and then he'll know whether there's any hope of fixing her or not. And he tries to ask what cost she would be willing to pay, and she just tells him that she trusts him. And uh, he finishes this up with asking, uh, asking why she's with someone like him. And she doesn't really answer that either. She kind of demurs on that one too. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think I think you're getting the idea. The dragon kind of knows what uh, knows what's up here, at least on some level. Um, I, I the 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 choice that the price that that he's trying to get her to admit to, at least implicitly here, is would you be willing to give me up? Like, it's not just this place. It's not just this life. It's to get what you want. You have to, you, you might have to lose me. And, Mm -hmm. and he's asking her that without, without actually being able to ask her that. And by not answering by, by kind of deflecting, she's basically saying, yeah, that this is, this is so important to me. This is such an important part of who I am that, that yes, um, yeah. and, and he, he, knowing that is willing to do it anyway. And that is, that's love. That's what it is. And yeah. I think it's cool that we see in this moment that she makes this choice. And then I think dragon has her own realization towards the end of this chapter that kind of reverses what she would, the decision she might've made before. Yeah. Yeah. If you love somebody, set them free and then delete their memory for the last two years. <laughs> Uh, I didn't know that was that's what the yeah, saying was. Those are the uh, that's the rest of the lyrics. People huh. don't usually sing huh. that part. Um, yeah, uh, so he goes back to his ship, letting his expression crumble, and says, "Better to get it over with." And then the perspective switches as Colin opens Pandora's box. Pandora is a years-old backup of Dragon prior to all teachers' modifications, a backup to perhaps the first time he ever tried to modify her code. Yeah, I think this is like the the Hephaestus callback is great because I mean, I know Greek mythology. I knew that Hephaestus made Pandora, um, but I forgot that in the moment and was just like, oh, look, he's not Zeus anymore. And like, oh, fuck. (laughs) And you're like you're like primed through not only your understanding of Pandora and Pandora's box and, and, and Colin's talk of costs over and over again and the costs we're willing to pay. You're like primed for this to go wrong fast so you yeah. like you're, you're immediately in like oh shit mode right and before the perspective switches the last thing he says is um i hope i you know he he, he hopes that he fails and the thing is like both outcomes for him are terrible because either he's going to get a restored a restored version of dragon who is basically not dragon who doesn't have any of the memories of the last two years or he's going to get a potentially really pissed off dragon who has successfully fought off pandora um yeah and 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 even if dragon's not pissed off at him it'll mean that he failed to give her what she wanted right she Um, she, they will spend the rest of their lives knowing that she doesn't have what she truly wanted yeah right yeah 
Um, it's not great for him either way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it it turns out, you know, so so Colin's been saying to to Dragon all these things, but it, they're just the things he's been saying are just as much for Pandora's ears. Uh, Pandora understands the purpose of what he's done. She's been armed to destroy Dragon and replace her. So she takes in her surroundings, noticing her digital affordances, and she sees Dragon preparing dinner. And as she takes in, you know, the scene of all this, she realizes that what Dragon has is all of her dreams come true. Yeah, and I think this is really important, um, especially given what we see Pandora choose at the end of this this uh, this chapter. Um, Dragon might have have the awareness to realize that the life she currently has does not make her complete. But Pandora, who is just finding herself alive and, and suddenly hasn't experienced anything, is suddenly thrown at this thing, is just like, wow, this is everything I wanted. And if Dragon is real, we have to treat pandora as real too like if dragon is alive then pandora is just as alive and suddenly she has agency and she has desires and she has wants and she wants this thing and she's being told the only way to get it is to go through dragon to destroy dragon and and so suddenly we're in this this area where we understand everyone's motivation and they're they're all inter it's like it's like a love triangle where two people are the same copy of each other and it's the ai it's not perfect love triangle but it's you know you, you got me yeah it's isosceles you know <laughs> um yeah yeah so so pandora goes for it she hacks into the melusine first thinking like an ai but then realizing that dragon concocted an abstract password that refers to colin's location she cracks into the system and dragon immediately detects the intrusion and recognizes that this is a copy of her Dragon enlists the simpler onboard AI to help her and uses the Melusine to blow holes in the Pendragon, where Pandora's hardware is located and also where Colin is. The Melusine crushes his legs to immobilize him. <laughs> Limbs master. <laughs> uh, uh, this is, yeah, I know. It's really rough. For, he does, both Colin and, and Taylor do not do well with their uh, appendages. Yeah. Um, I, before we move on, I just wanted to talk about like we basically shifted into an action sequence now, but it's like all in cyberspace. So we're talking about like like attacking and defending and and flanking and 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 Wadwo writes this as if it's just another action sequence, but it's all digital and it's it's really cool. I think it's it's really inventive. Yeah, you can always keep track of what's happening too. I think that's the important part. Yeah, even though it's it's all kind of abstract and and ones and zeros. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Pandora is, is losing, actually. So she strips herself down, losing memories and complexity, and loads herself into Colin's armor. And Dragon, in her, in her real body, can't bring herself to shoot Colin. And so Pandora takes the gun and shoots Dragon's body, buying herself some time. She then attacks Dragon's code, overriding herself onto Dragon, overriding the corrupted code. She absorbs much of who Dragon is, but she stops herself at the personality module. And having, having looked over Dragon's memories, having having looked at what Dragon has now, having looked at, at who Colin is and, and, and what they have together, she feels like what she's doing doesn't seem very heroic. So she arranges Dragon's code in a way that that, that, that it needs to be, and then she, she deletes herself. Yeah, so, so this was it. This was the, the fundament, fundamental price. A, a version of Dragon has to die for another version to go on. And I think we see here now, here at the end, that that saint was wrong saint was fundamentally wrong 
about who and what Dragon was. Because Dragon is, even at her core, even with you strip out everything else, at her core, she is a hero. That, that, that she, she's willing to sacrifice herself to give up the thing that she wants the most so someone else can get it. And that's heroic. And it's not just heroic though, Matt. It's, it's human. It's real. It's not simulated emotions. It's not trickery. It's not illusion. It's real. And it's a conscious choice with agency that a living being makes. Yeah, it's it's really powerful, um, and it's it, it, the 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 kind of most bittersweet part of it all is you've got this this heroic sacrifice, which again that that's kind of the theme of this chapter. I think that that reflects Taylor's heroic sacrifice. Um, it it buys it buys the impossible outcome that Colin wasn't even daring to hope for because Dragon comes back, finds the ability to cut out Teacher's corruption is in her grasp now. And she repairs herself and she goes to hug Colin and she says, I, I love you, Colin. And in that tight hold, she was free. Um, and, and it's, and it's beautiful because he, uh, you know, the, the two of them get what they didn't dare hope for. They, they get, uh, an unshackled dragon, um, and, uh, and, and no memory loss. And, uh, he gets to keep the woman he loves and, you know, it's, it's great. And, we don't get that. So I, I also love that we don't even get to see the aftermath of this. We don't get to see him react to this. It's just that moment of, of she hugs him and that's it. Yeah. And the juxtaposition in that last line is just beautiful in that tight hold. We have tight, we have hold, we have uh, words about capturing and holding and, and locking up juxtaposed with, with freedom and that she has found her freedom and it's with this man and it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Oh uh, yeah. So, um, we move from, uh, from heartbreak into, uh, just sunshine and daisies, Scott. Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So Rachel and her posse are riding into town on, on, uh, dogs or rather Rachel's riding a dog. Uh, biter looks forward to getting some fast food. He leads the smell hounds on somebody's trail. Cassie tries to say something about how she feels self-conscious because she doesn't fit in here, but Rachel isn't really equipped to understand her. And uh, Biter is going on a, a rant about fast food. No, Biter said, I can't let this go because bad fast food is important. It's a staple of society, and having ridiculous coffee shops and mass-produced food is a badge, a way of showing that we've gone past the industrial age and into modern society. Seeing those glowing signs down there, it's a sign that humanity is actually recovering. It'd be an insult if we didn't partake. Um, and I think that's just a delightful character moment for Biter and also, um, speaks to the, the, the idea that this, um, that this world is indeed recovering. Cause I think he's right. Like, like when, when you can afford these extravagances, uh, that means that, uh, civilization is actually starting to pick itself up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a very hopeful outlook from, from Biter. <laughs> um, yeah. It's cool because I think that ties into the, the the central theme of this chapter as well. That Rachel's theme, this, uh, this epilogue four, is about trust and about Rachel has gone on this journey where she's kind of come to term with the fact that she 
has difficulty understanding people and has difficulty being understood by people. She's come to terms with that, but she's still struggling because she has Cassie here who's who's got something wrong with her and Rachel doesn't know what to do with. She she's not dressed properly. She feels silly and Rachel doesn't know how to comfort her. She's got Biter who wants french fries and she doesn't understand why she doesn't get this. Why do you need I don't understand this. And she needs to get to a place where she can put a little faith in these people and not like not have to kind of micromanage them, not have to um, to to understand everything they go through, but to trust them, to trust their ability to just do their own thing to a certain extent. And I, I like th- this this theme doesn't come really into clear focus until the end of this chapter, unlike some of the other ones that make it clear very early. But I, I can see us laying the groundwork for it here, and I think it's it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's it's neat because, like, like you said, we're going to call back to it at the end. But she she is very perceptive. She doesn't understand some things, but she understands a lot of things intuitively that other people may not understand. Like I think even even at this point, although we don't realize it, she has already on some level intuited that Biter is unhappy and thinking about leaving her, um, and Biter might might not even realize that yet at this point. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So there uh, becomes clear that they're tracking some kind of uh, you know some kind of person who has run from them, um, and then they detect a cape fight nearby. But she hesitates to get involved, uh, and she thinks she'd spent her entire life being restless, and now the restlessness was largely gone. Yeah, but but she still acts. She still does get involved, and why? It's because of Taylor. Um, but it's not, it's a different reflection of what we saw in the imps chapter. It's not just because it's what Taylor would want. It's not just because this is, uh, honoring Taylor's legacy. It's kind of that, but it's also distinctly Rachel. And we'll find out the real reason here, right, right now. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because, um, basically she, she can't, she can't articulate it to her, her friends, um, she can't articulate this feeling of solidarity with the other capes. Um, so she lies and she says that, you know, there's probably some dogs and dog owners in there that might be in trouble. We need to, we need to save them. Yeah. And I love that beat because she's not lying because she doesn't want to tell the truth, but because she, she doesn't know how to explain solidarity. She doesn't know how to put that in audible word form for, for her people yeah. to understand that, that for the first time that what, the gift taylor has given her is is for the first time in in forever that rachel feels part of something and and that she belongs to something and that she has an obligation to that thing it's like she's opened her pack up a little bit that she's now considering more people as part of this pack and and that's yes absolutely thanks to taylor but it's it's the strides that taylor that rachel has made throughout the story that that leads her to this point yeah, it's it's beautiful, and we're so happy for her. Uh, so as she approaches this fight, we find out that, that what's happening is it's a broken trigger. A man is undergoing a transformation that seems to be killing him, and the capes are either attacking him or trying to contain the damage. Rachel sees flashes of a new kind of trigger vision from Scion's point of view just before his destruction. She pilots bastards around the battlefield as the broken trigger leaks dangerous black ooze everywhere, saving one wind cape and later a couple of kids. Uh, uh, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. That's not good. Yeah. 
So Miss Militia, working with Vista, finally manages to blow the new trigger away. But shockingly, the shard seems to just jump to someone else. The black ooze starts pouring out of a different bystander. But uh, this new host is destroyed by the power itself. And then the cycle s- stops. Uh oh, times times two. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So this is this is when we learn how things have changed after the death of Cylon. I think they specifically say that uh, a fifth of natural triggers are now going wrong. That the shards seemingly are are no longer like protecting the owner, and shit's just just going bad. <laughs> so yeah. I like this a lot because like it, like we've been talking about, it's very easy to look at this as just set up for something else, right? You, you could make that argument. This is just setting up what one of the conflicts is going to be going forward in a, a sequel one day. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's that. This is another example of the world and the continuous problems of the world. And I think it ties into this theme of trust with Rachel because things are changing and things are going to get worse. We, we've, we've kind of been on the precipice for a while with this, this, this unstable piece. And now we're seeing that it's not just that capes are violent. They're going to fight each other, but now just the act of triggering is going to go wrong in some way too. And we're not really sure why this is happening, but people are going to need to band together. People are going to need to trust each other. Again, Rachel is going to need to find a way to work with these people. And, and that's why this is here. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it also gives us this sense that this is a world and things will continue uh, beyond this story. And right. uh, I mean, I, I don't think that means it's setting up a sequel per se. I think it just means it's saying like, yep, um, you know, there's just because they fixed one problem doesn't mean there's another one starting up. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. it, it all in all it makes sense too. like when you think about like, why? why this might be happening you, you can think about it and i mean you may not get the right answer or whatever not that not that i know what the answer is but well i'm assuming it's, it's like scion right like they opened a portal to where his body was and there's a shit ton of shards in there and now they're free to just like fly around yeah i mean i'd figure it's something to do with like the cycle has been broken and the shards are you know the entities are, are agglomerations of billions of of shards and 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 on, on some level they're like a colony organism right so so now that the shards are realizing the cycle is broken they're going to try something different um i don't know if that's all i mean i think that the shards that scion threw out there were specific like specifically designed to keep humans safe yeah. from the trigger and so the shards that were just on him that he never thought he was going to be tossing out there, he might not have put that base protection in there. So there's no, these are shards that are attaching to people that never were meant to, and they have no base protection, and they're just going ape shit. Yeah, right. I mean, it reminds me of when Eden crash landed. Sorry, Fuckster uh, crash yeah. landed. Yeah. And 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 it, it wasn't. I don't think it was the same as this, but there were there were monsters, and, and it was it was chaos. So, yeah. 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 So yeah, she. Uh, uh, yeah, after having uh, witnessed this trigger stopping, um, she takes the people she saved down to Miss Militia's team. Miss Militia tells her that there's an amnesty, and that means she's not a villain unless she does something villainous. Uh, and I like this exchange where Rachel's going, uh, you know, you work here? Do the superhero thing? Yes, but then it's yours, Rachel said. Others had told her she could sound hostile in situations like this, 
So she tried to speak like she would to a dog that hadn't been exposed to humans. <laughs> Gentle, acknowledging the fact that it couldn't understand. The sound was more important than anything. <laughs> I love this. I, I have had canned this as way more ridiculous than it probably is, but I'm just imagining like, you work here? Do the superhero thing? Then it's your territory. Yes, it is. This is your territory. This is your territory. Yes. <laughs> That's headcanon uh, now. Yes. Oh, uh, such character growth. Wow. <laughs> um, Stop it. I hate you so much. <laughs> I know. I know. But it's the only time I get to use that in context. It's a terrible meme, and you should never use it in context. I know. Just just now though now now we're done all right so later on rachel's team have rescued little boy uh that, that they were tracking biter thanks her for letting him uh stop and get a burger and she reflects on the fact that she's losing him which she she gets intuitively yeah this uh, she, uh, she makes her way now by herself to her memorial site and realizes she's been followed by vista and this militia vista offers to help her shape her memorial to taylor but rachel declines yeah and i sat with this for a while because i wanted to i wanted to crack this Mm -hmm. and i think i have i think i've i've cracked why this is so significant and i i love it Mm -hmm. um because this this memorial is just a a collection of rocks that any passerby would not understand would look at it and it would be confused and would not it would not be able to communicate what its meaning to them and they would not understand it and Vista offers to solve that problem, to make it clear, to make it so everyone would understand. And Rachel turns that down because just like the people that understand Rachel versus the people that don't understand Rachel, it doesn't, it, it, she doesn't care who knows what it mean, what the, these things mean because she knows and the people that matter to her know. So it's just like, it, it's, it's a perfect metaphor for her fully coming to grips with who she is as a person and, and fully coming to grips with, with the understanding that I am not normal. I cannot communicate to people like other people can. I cannot understand other people like they can. And I am okay with remaining that way. Even if someone were to offer to fix me. No. Yeah. Yeah. And she's going to grieve in her own way. Yeah. Um, and speaking of grieving, she, uh, she says, uh, and some idiots, Rachel said, banging her head against the rock behind her, a little harder than she'd intended in the spot where the rock jutted out. The sharp pain brought tears to her eyes are even harder to understand than the motherfucking French fry thing. Yeah, and we have to assume, as she beats her head against Taylor's gravestone, that she's talking about her best friend here. And Yeah. And right. I, I, lo- uh, yeah. I love this. I really do. I, I love this idea that she... Taylor's gone and she can't understand why, why did you do those things? Why did you leave? Why are you gone? I don't get it and I can't understand it. And that frustrates me and there's nothing I can do. And it's beautiful and painful and human. And I love it. Yeah, me too. So here we have Miss Militia propose an arrangement. The heroes won't bother her. And she will come to them first if she needs anything to happen in their territory. And Miss Militia asks, can we trust each other? Rachel frowned. Trust. She lost hers right in the beginning, left alone in an apartment to starve and scald herself. Here, now, 17 years later, after any number of betrayals, great and small, she was aware of the tall stone behind her. Sure. And there it is. Trust. The one thing 
that that even even through Rachel's growth, the one thing that she would only give out to a very, very, very select number of people, really just just Taylor and to a lesser extent, the, the, the undersiders. Um, and now she's brought back into a place where she can trust again, where she can belong again. And that's just such a beautiful end for this wonderful, complicated, beautiful character. I just can't believe how good this is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just want to like pause here, like close to the end of the story and just kind of remark on the amazing power of this, this character arc, like from, from the moment this character walked into the, the, the story, there has been this clear in retrospect trajectory of what this character's arc was and every, everything she does, every choice she makes, every interaction reinforces her character and inevitably leads to her having this, this, this resolution, this moment of, of healing where she, uh, you know, be, becomes a, a, a more, a more whole person as a result of the events in the story. And I'm not saying the arc was planned out in the sense that Wildo knew everything that was going to happen step by step along the way. But I, I, I think that with, with this character and with many other characters that we've seen in, you know, in this interlude and elsewhere in the story, um, it's it's masterful the degree to which he understands the substance of their arc before he ever starts out with it, and uh, that is so incredibly rare. Like you you and I will review whole movies where zero character arcs actually land, and this is a story where I can't even count the number of masterful, um, fully fleshed out characters with extremely satisfying arcs. We've we've seen three. In the yeah. last three chapters, bam, 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 yeah. imp, defiant, Rachel here, one after another, a beautiful end to a, a complicated, satisfying, fulfilling arc that not only makes sense for the character and the character's individual growth, but manages to perfectly tie into these themes of identity, of trauma, of, of searching for a, a path for yourself that, that moves you away from the mistakes of your past. And, and you're absolutely right. This, this is incredible. It's such, it's like, we, we talk so much about like the details of this writing sometimes, like, like the, the minute, like the words Wildbo uses, the, the, how he structures his paragraphs, how he structures his sentences. We, we often don't get very high level and talk about book long structure. And, his ability to carry these characters through this really long, complicated story and deliver again and again and again, satisfying conclusions is remarkable. It really is. And it's, it's why this book is good. It's the superhero stuff is great. The mythology of the powers is great. The, the, how everything works, the world that this has built, it's all great, but the reason this book is great is because of these characters. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the reason it connects. It's, it's what makes it hit so hard. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's why we care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At all, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I just, I just, uh, I just needed to gush there because like you said, one, one, two, three, and, uh, you can't help, but, can't help but be stunned at it 
I feel. Right. I, I, yeah, yeah, I can't either. I, it's, it's amazing. Like, especially when you sit down to, to plan it out and you start talking about it and you start writing down and thinking of where the characters were and where they ended up and how perfect, like I use the word perfect a lot. I know I do, but these arcs are, are near flawless. They really yeah. are. This is what, yeah. a, this is what a character, I, I will, I would take Rachel and I would use Rachel as an example of how to teach someone to write a character arc. That's how good of an arc I think it is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's an inspirational. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think that's, that's, that's great. Let's, let's move on to the fifth, uh, fifth interlude, the fifth chapter here. Speaking and of we, teaching, and yeah, you get it? Cause, yeah, education. <laughs> so here we have teacher, uh, a thrall and a mysterious Viking cape make their way into a secure PRT location. They discuss the proper use of paranoia. Yeah, and this this theme of this chapter reveals itself here here pretty soon that that it's about paranoia. I think you said madness earlier as well yeah. that 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 it is a is a thing that teacher uses as a tool to ensure his survival. But I think what we see is it's also one that tends to lead to to bad bad things, to destruction. Yeah, right. And I, and I gotta say, Matt, we just talked for like five minutes glowingly about some of the, the, these chapters and i think out of this the six chapters that make up this epilogue this is i think the weakest one um I, I still think it's good there are really good moments in here like anything else in this book but i think this all stems from the fact that i don't care about teacher very much and i understand what the arc is doing i understand that it's that it's setting up problems and demonstrating that humans will continue to human but i kind of wish I kind of I, I wish we could kind of like shift this to a character that I I I want to see hit their conclusion a little bit more. Yeah, I think one thing you and I were talking about uh, at some point was that we weren't sure whether Teacher is a scary villain or not. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, is is he too big for his britches? Uh, and and he's just because he he did get caught, which uh, you know, uh, Ingenue points out to him in a moment. Um, so. So it's, 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 we're not sure if we're seeing like, oh, we're inside the head of the infamous teacher or if it's just like, oh, this blowhard. Um, and I'm not, uh, yeah. So that's just, that's, that's one thing that for me kind of, I'm not sure how to absorb it. So yeah, yeah I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So anyway, they're, they're here to break out on Janu. Um, they, they break into her, her, you know, apartment sort of her cell, if you will. And teacher tells Anjanu that he's planning something big and that his criminal moves like assassinating heads of state were always a, a matter of perturbing the system, shaking the box enough to see the real big picture. Um, and just like this tiny throwaway bit here where um, she says she's getting tired of Chevalier because he's not paying any attention to her. And uh, teacher says, so Chevalier has slipped the noose. More apt to say he stepped out of the frying pan. Anjanu said, running a brush over her jaw-length hair. The only ones who end up worse than my boyfriends are my ex-boyfriends. It's so sad. Uh, oh no. Don't, don't worry, Matt. My boy, my boy can take it. He's a, he's a baller, and nothing bad will ever happen to Chevalier again, because yep. I'd be really sad. Well, well, thank God the book's over. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's get out of this. <laughs> he made it. There's no sequels. Uh, yeah. So they escape. Uh, dragon's teeth hot on the trail. The facility goes into full lockdown. 
and the Viking cape casts off the ruse, and we see from his power that it's good old satirical. Yeah, so Mr. Loyal to his friends forever, just let him die and <laughs> just win to a backup clone or something, I guess. Yeah, we, we had a little discussion about this in, in the in the spoiler discord where I was like, so did satirical just just like stand with his friends saying it's been an honor serving with you and then they all get murdered and he's just like, well, I made it out of that one. Bye bye. Um, or, or or was the whole thing a ruse? Like, I think it's more likely that like the whole thing was a ruse and his friends also survived somehow. But I have no evidence for that. So I think that uh, I think that makes closer sense to what we've grown to understand about their loyalty to each other. Yeah. I mean, there, there's also just the idea that like they were all fucked and like they were screwed anyway. So just because he happens to have a, a backup clone somewhere else, that means he can survive. This doesn't mean that like he couldn't save them. Yeah, that that's point. true. So I, I guess. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. So he, uh, uh, teacher changes the power of his thrall from low level precognition to something along the lines of short range clairvoyance. The Dragon's Teeth soldiers arrive and start arresting them, with Teacher giving a long, elaborate justification for why arresting him is a bad idea, and it will result in huge collateral damage. Um, and eventually he's able to use one of his Tinker teleportation pads to get out before he's arrested, and so are his uh, compatriots. Yeah, okay, that was that was pretty cool, I guess. I'll yeah, allow it. I mean, it, I mean, the plan works, so yeah. that's one that's one point in, in the teacher actually knows what he's doing. Colin. Yeah. But it's, it's like, it's interesting. Cause like w- w- this, this, this theme of paranoia of madness keeps rearing its ugly head. Right. And so it's this idea that like teacher is successful and he, he builds this as an image of someone who is always right. Always has the upper hand, always knows that his plans are going to work out to fruition. But what it seems to be really is this obsessiveness and like, insane paranoid attention to detail that is not is not actually confidence is just madness yeah and it it yeah it comes off as sure-footing like i always know what's going to happen i'm totally confident but really it's just i'm so insane that i will check every corner and every little detail Right. Like, yeah, just all the contingencies upon contingencies to indicate some kind of deep um, level of being unable to just relax, I think. Yeah. Right. Which it's is a, a problem. Sh- shitty way to live. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he's lived in the birdcage for, for years now. So he's, yeah. you know, probably even worse than he was before, I would say. Yeah. Um, so they, um, they, they basically they teleport back to their kind of base. And they see that Lung was providing a distraction for this operation. Uh, so they're watching kind of through some video cameras on, on his thralls. Uh, with, uh, so, so Lung is accompanied with a number of teacher thralls. And Lung has fought through the fortifications and defenses to reach the objective, which is the weapon the Simurg had crafted. And uh, Contessa joins them watching the video. This was actually uh, one of the fake outs, I thought, where you have a, a woman approach from out of frame and you're like, Oh, is it Taylor with teacher? No, <laughs> nope. It's nope. Contessa. Nope. Yeah. Which I mean, you kind of, if you remember that Contessa was with teacher, you can figure that out. Yeah. But, but I think, I think, you know, you're, you, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much these are intentional fake outs. At first it is really just you like desperate for Taylor to be alive. Uh, I come on. Is the teacher, <laughs> is it Taylor? No, it's lung. Oh, no, no, it's uh, lung. 
Yeah. No, it's yeah. the Seamurg. What are you talking yeah. about? Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. We'll get there. So, yeah, Lung, uh, he opens up the gun. It's, it's a fake. It contains an ugly baby boy. Uh, Lung kills the baby and leaves, uh, meeting Seamurg on the way out. And then she returns to orbit. So an ugly baby boy, huh, Matt? With like yeah. a, a comically large nose and ears. Oh. Who did that look like, Matt? I don't know. She made her daddy. I was wrong. Daddy. She, I was wrong. She, yeah, she needed a new, she needed worthy da- daddies. Um, daddies, yeah. Talk about daddy issues. Me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's adorable in a weird ass kind of way. I, I yeah. wonder, like, I mean, what do you think, like, Lung just comes out killing her daddy, and then they see each other, and then they yeah. just kind of stare at each other, and then the Seamurg just leaves? Yeah, I wonder I what think, that's all about. Right. I feel like the Seamurg is just telepathically saying, like, you just fucked yourself, dude, <laughs> and then she leaves. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so everyone present has the grace to be perturbed by this, wondering if they didn't just set something terrible in motion. Uh, yeah. um, and Contessa says that she'll most likely help. Uh, most likely. Most likely. Thanks, Contessa. You continue to be very useful. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, Teacher and Ingenue now teleport to visit Marquis. And uh, they have, they visit him on his colonial veranda and have iced tea. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and they say, uh, you asked if a person could change. I look at us, at the people we interact with, and I see madmen and monsters. Is that just us, the individuals, or is it mankind? And I think this little bit here is actually pretty core to the stuff that Worm discusses, because mankind is monstrous. We have the capacity yeah. for horrors. It's in our code. It's inherent in the deepest part of our brain. But we're also capable of that special, unique human goodness, selflessness, heroism, self-sacrifice we're really a, a fascinating contradiction yeah i i completely agree and and worm does not take that completely pessimistic view of humanity i think it takes it takes a realistic one it it we are all these things we are jack slash we are nilbog we are bone saw we are teacher and ingenue and and marquis but we're also golem we're we're chevalier we're we're Riley trying to move away from Bonesaw. We're, we're Ciara trying to move away from her former self. Amy trying to find her place. And, and, and we're Taylor too. Not good, not evil, just a traumatized person trying to do their best. We are all of those things. And I, I like that this, we have this question posed by Marquis is, is, is that just individuals or is that all of mankind? And then in the very next chapter, we have what ends up being Taylor talking to a woman on a bus who says us as a whole, mankind as a whole is good. And it's just up to individuals to push that goodness. And here we have them questioning is mankind as a whole monstrous or is it just individual monsters? And I love that. Like we're seeing both those sides of the discussion uh, in these two chapters here. Yeah. I love, I love that tremendously i didn't notice that symmetry that's that's great um and this is really what you think of as like classic epilogue material where you have the characters coming as as close as they ever come to talking about the themes explicitly yeah so yeah teacher makes his business proposal which is this 
somewhat vague idea of putting the whole back together, basically achieving something greater by, we don't really know what he means, basically something to do with shards and understanding that the shards are all supposed to go together for some reason. And he wants to fight back against entropy and all that's wrong in the world. Ironically, exactly what Eden uh, and the worms in general were trying to do. Um, And ironically, what Taylor wanted. Yeah. And we've, Seen how well that goes. <laughs> yeah. Some people just just can't learn, Matt. They can't. Yeah. And, and I think that ties into this theme, this paranoia, this madness that 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 he seems to be repeating past mistakes, and yeah. that's kind of his nature. Yeah. I mean, they basically tell him, uh, "You can't avoid it." Anjanu said, "Can you live without charm, intimidation, or some form of influence over others, without making others do your bidding on some level? You flirt, they react one way or another." Everything is manipulation. I think there's such a thing as extremes, Marquis said, case in point. I think I know who you're thinking of, teacher said. She had it all, and see where it got her? Marquis said, a lesson for you, teacher. It was enough to give teacher a moment's pause. Um, which I, I, I love that as an ending. Yeah, it, it, it's for, great. Like yeah. I, The fact that t- t- what Taylor did and what happened to Taylor is so terrible that even teacher is like, ooh, yeah, maybe, hmm. maybe, yeah, huh. <laughs> maybe I should pump the brakes on this one. Yeah. Um, maybe we're in an Icarus scenario here. Yeah, I ultimately think that. I mean, we 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 won't know, and we might never know, but I ultimately think that's not going to be enough to stop him. But it gives him a pause for a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A moment's pause. Yeah. yeah. Oh, hey, hey, Scott. I um, yeah, I forgot to mention this, but um, it turns out that it's actually. Uh, Marquis, not Marquis. So, uh, I think for the rest of the show, oh. we uh, we'll you know for for we've got worm going forward, we'll say Marquis and not Marquis. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. Oh God. I'm so. That's a that's embarrassing. I guess. Yeah. But, make but sure. Worry. Yeah. No. Yeah, we won't make that on, mistake again. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> All right. Uh, okay. All right. That being settled, uh, we're moving in. Moving, in, Scott. Final chapter. Final chapter, final epilogue, E dot X. Ooh, E dot X. A teenager. What? It's just like (laughs) ominous. It's like X. It's not six. It's X. X. I know. A teenager on a train gives up their seat to an elderly woman. The woman engages the teenager in conversation. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I was talking about this in the Discord earlier today, but upon reflection, I did not realize that this teenager is not gender coded in any way like in fact if you go back and read the text it's kind of almost unnaturally bending over backwards in order to avoid any gendered pronouns at all yeah um in in a way that some of the sentences are a bit awkward but i missed this (laughs) on my first read through like totally and i think i remember specifically coding this person as a girl before we even knew that and i I, Uh i was kind of shocked at the fact that I did that. And I think it's just because we had been in, in woman point of view for such a vast majority of this book that I immediately said, new person must be girl. And I just did that. And I was like, huh, that's very interesting. And realizing that, that my brain just automatically did that without me noticing. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause see, I was, uh, still so incredibly desperate to find out if Terry was alive <laughs> that, that when I got to the point where, um, the old woman says, Oh, a college man. I was like, Oh no. yeah. And, and the weirdest part about that, like brains are weird because the yeah. weirdest part about that for me was I got to 
her saying college man, and my brain went, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, well, I guess I'll just ignore it. And yeah. that's what my head did. <laughs> I was like, yeah. why would you do that? Don't yeah. do that. See, that, that kind of irrational mistake is my normal way of reading things, Scott. So <laughs> welcome. Weird. What's it like? Yeah. Uh, well, you end up with a lot of impressions that, for example, Taylor is a, an ambiguously heroic protagonist. Oh, that can't be. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a little I'm... teapot, <laughs> short and stout. Uh, I like this exchange um, uh, where the woman says, you didn't answer my question earlier, business or pleasure? Everything is pleasure, I think, says the teenager. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's great. And it's like it's so it's so fun going back and reading this after we've already done it and seeing kind of Taylor shine through here. Like yeah. I at this point, I honestly did not. I was not like you were desperate to find Taylor alive. I was kind of pretty much convinced that she wasn't. And it took me about halfway through this thing before I started being like, oh, getting kind of actually really hopeful. And so I was not going that direction at all. So, but it is fun. Like that is such a a Taylor way of responding to that question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the, the woman turns out is going to meet an old friend who, she offended long ago by disapproving of her interracial relationship, uh, which is ironic considering who she's talking to. Yep. Um, they talk about looking back on your life and taking stock. Yeah, and I really like this conversation. I I think the the idea of this random old lady's uh, racist leanings is a great way to put a very mundane spin on the exact issues that Taylor is dealing with. This woman looks back on the choices she made when the world was different, when expectations were different. And she's wise enough to realize that just because it was a different era, just because it was accepted or necessary or whatever back then, doesn't mean that was a good enough reason. And, and, and this, the, the through line of here is the things we do, the choices we make, even if they seem right at the time, we have to be willing to look back and admit that sometimes we messed up and, and we did wrong. And we, that's the only way to penance. That's the only way to, to move forward and to not be destroyed by those choices. Yeah. And we're setting yeah, that up I, very early here with this yeah. mundane story. Right. This, this, this unpowered, normal old woman with a very, you know, almost, almost banal story. Very, very, uh, very relatable um and 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 it's again i mean it's it's just it's showing us that these are things that everyone deals with not just people who have to become uh alien goddess uh and and uh kill thousands of people or whatever um yeah so they argue about whether things are better now than they used to be the old woman insisting that they are despite billions of people dying (laughs) yeah and an interesting and very optimistic view of the species and, and the one that our, our mystery teen can't fully buy into, right? She kind of says, I don't, I don't know about that. And, and like we said, this is a great reflection of what Mark was. Uh, oh shit. Uh, Mark, Mark, Marquis. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a good reflection of what was discussed in the last chapter. Um, and, 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 and th- this is further examined here when she says, but it's worth saying that it's up to people to make it better. The woman said, I trust that people will improve as a group, but we can help it along by striving to be better people 
on an individual basis. And that is different from how Taylor approached things, right? Like it was, yeah. it was all about the overall good and yeah. less I mean, about yeah. individual goodness. Right. Well, I, I mean, what the woman is describing here is very much in line with kind of Golem's approach in, in a way, like yeah, I see through that. a certain lens, because, because it's, it's like Taylor's like, I'm going to make everyone be good. And Golem's like, I'm just going to be good. Yeah. Um, and, and by, I, I just, yeah. Right. Right. By being good as an individual, you can make humanity good yeah, as, as, a, as opposed to I'm going to make humanity good literally yeah, right <laughs> i'm right. going to make them it's yeah. it's leadership through inspiration rather than through being a tyrannical warlord right right so, which is something that taylor always had had a trouble getting past yeah yeah always had struggled with the whole warlord thing yeah uh, yeah so uh the woman then asks if the teenager is carrying a bomb and the teenager completely nonplussed shows her that there isn't a bomb yeah this is such a weird beat here matt and i i tried to like decipher it for a while and i don't i don't know if i'm even there yet i don't it's like this like we have this this wonderful woman who believes in the inherent goodness of humanity and she caps off that conversation by asking the stranger if you have a bomb in your in your suitcase and yeah i I like the only thing i could think of is this is maybe a hint that this is Taylor because we have this idea that throughout the book, Taylor is like always a little creepier than she comes off. And so maybe this is a hint that, that throughout this conversation, Taylor is not being as like soft and kind as maybe she thinks she is. And so she's really not noticing that she's making this woman as uncomfortable as she is. I I honestly don't know, but I, I don't know how to parse it. Yeah. This, this is a, this is a, it's like, it's weirdly charming. Um, it, it, it this this throwaway old woman character and her her paranoia and her uh uh like her embarrassment after she asks and it's not a bomb and she's she's embarrassed about it and it is a very Taylor beat for Taylor to be like yeah you know you saw something weird so you ask yeah um, yeah um yeah and it's just kind of yeah it's interesting that the whole the whole presence of this old woman in this interlude is very um. You can read a lot into it. I'm not even sure if I am confident in in understanding what the presence of this character means. But uh, I think we hit most of the beats that I'm confident about. Like 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 you said. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because there's I mean there's a interpretation of this entire chapter that is none of this is really happening, right? Yeah. And right. and there are moments that can support that, and and there are these kind of random. Um, kind of almost absurdist moments like that where yeah. just randomly you got a bomb in that suitcase where it's just like what and and i see how those moments would support that interpretation that that this is some sort of dream or or i i don't the afterlife this doesn't i don't buy yeah, it but that, um, yeah i think we'll get into that when we, when we round the finish line but right. there are moments like this that i think lend a little credence to the theory that this is not literally happening yeah, I mean, it definitely makes you feel like there's something off. But, like, afterlife doesn't really scan for me. And if it was a dream, then Taylor would open her backpack and it would be full of salami <laughs> rather than, you know, a computer. So, like, that's that's the part where I'm like, okay, well, yeah, something could be not what it seems to be. But uh, that 
that doesn't that's not an answer to me i guess but yeah, yeah. we will talk about that later so matt do you often dream of salami i'm a little <sighs> a little concerned it's a recurring image <laughs> um yeah so the, tr- the teenager gets off the train in philadelphia and then we switch perspectives to tattletale imp sneaks into her office and uh uh tattletale says one of these days you're going to give someone a heart attack imp put away her phone I've killed before. He was a clone, but I still locked him. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so isn't this interesting? Yeah. Didn't she say she killed a uh, heartbreaker? So, so I pulled this out because I noticed that. And then when you think about that scene where she said she killed heartbreaker, that was in a string of like four lies to Taylor, like telling her that, that Cozen and grew were married and that Cozen was pregnant <laughs> and basically she was just trying to put uh taylor off balance consistently so it made me wonder like hey is this her admitting that she didn't actually kill heartbreaker maybe somebody else did yeah um, I, I i that's my interpretation i think um yeah that's interesting think, it's it's a it's a really fascinating revelation you know that yeah. like we we got this image taylor left for two years and and we got this image of this imp that almost seemed to kind of reflect the I am now a badass assassin fear that that Taylor had, but turns out that was kind of just posturing. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's plausible. And I actually like that as a direction for, for imp that she's someone whose hands are relatively clean actually. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. So here, then we get pages of amazing imp tattletale banter. Um, does seem like tattletale's heart isn't really in it. Uh, she seems a bit despondent, tired. She's not really smiling or volleying back very well. Yeah, they've they've saved the world, and Tattletale can't stop working herself too hard. Um, I think <laughs> so. I'm probably going to get accused of of putting too much uh, analysis onto to Tattletale's motives and stuff here, but but I think it's not hard to see a Lisa that on some level blames herself for Taylor's death. I put that in, in quotes, listeners, just just so you know. Um, yeah. Because like we know Lisa and one of Lisa's primary motivators was always the idea of protecting Taylor and keeping Taylor safe as, as a connecting tissue to her original trauma and the loss of her brother. So it's not hard to see a a Lisa that is reeling after everything that happened. And even even when it turns out that that Taylor is not dead, um, I still think she would put a certain amount of blame on herself for letting the things that happened happened the way they happened. And I, I think it's, it's not hard to see that a response to that for Lisa would be, okay, I need to double down and work harder to make sure that doesn't happen again. And yeah. So that the tiredness kind of makes sense here. Yeah. I think that was all in line with my interpretation that she's, she let down her little sister proxy. Um, it, whether or not Taylor's alive, I think she feels she let her down. And, and failed her and uh she's she's a bit she you know she, she's not her normal kind of carefree sarcastic self um, yeah and, and yeah that, that's definitely detectable here um yeah I, I think i agree with all of your analysis there so the needle points arrive uh, which is <laughs> imp's, imp's name for fletched and Perian. best name um and uh uh, imp has to leave to make sure the heartbroken don't do anything horrible to tattletales mercenaries uh, i love the uh, cute kids they were whispering and giggling with each other when we passed by oh man imp drew out the word she paused hesitating then groaned i'll be back 
<laughs> it's i mean this is a continuation of of that chapter right where like there's like a real idea that these kids could actually do some bad shit but it yeah. comes off as so funny yeah. and i just like i just trust imp to handle this and yeah. there she goes off being a mom yep love it so fun so rachel arrives next followed by Forrest, charlotte sierra and Aiden. Uh, or Aiden, I never know. Uh, two more, Tattletail says. Uh, so Matt here is, is saying it's two more. Is, is it going to be, it's gonna, one of them is going to be Taylor, right? It's going to, Taylor's going to come in. Um, so Cozen arrives next alone. Alone. Uh, and, huh. yep, yeah, huh. alone. She and Imp argue over seating details. Aisha is saving a seat for Regent's doll. Yeah, that, that continual legacy beat. I think that's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. And the last person to arrive is a, a uh, young woman who walks in quietly, um, and uh, it's not Taylor. It's it's, uh, it's Dinah. It's not, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry, Matt. Yeah, just Dinah. So Tattletale offers a toast in honor of everything and everyone we fought for and saved, in remembrance of everything we couldn't save. I'm toasting Matt right now. Yeah, my water is up. I'm toasting. I'm, me, me too. The air. Um. <laughs> And then they pour out some libations for the fallen. Um, uh, one of them being, of course, uh, she could only hope that Taylor hadn't caught on, that in her final moments, she hadn't found out about everyone she'd really lost, that Gru hadn't made it off the oil rig, a white lie for a friend. Taylor would have blamed herself, maybe rightly, maybe not. Yeah, I think rightly, but uh, yeah. congratulations i just gave myself a slow clap um so (laughs) matt the funniest thing about this whole thing and i told you this last week yeah but like i was only ever about 50 50 percent sure on this one (laughs) and maybe more like 40 60 Uh and i just thought it would be really funny like once i doubled down on it the first time i felt like okay I've got to like fully commit to this thing and make it seem like I'm a hundred percent and either yeah. I'll be right and I'll just look like ridiculously overconfident and silly or I'll be wrong and just be really stupid. And that would be really funny. So yeah. that's what I did. And yeah. it just worked out in my it, favor. It did. I mean, it was really, it was really hard for me every single time you said, <laughs> cause he's dead. I, I was, I was like, cracking up because i was looking forward to the moment of you of you reading it and being like yes uh, which, which is funny because it's like when you're reading this book normally you're not like yes screws dad you're like no uh, i'm mean, too okay then let me let, let's yeah let's i was happy i was right yeah, I, I get it i know you i mean. do not want grew to die i think that's very sad i think grew's story is probably one of the most tragic oh god yes he <laughs> He's like, he, he suffers this horrible trauma and then he, as try, try as he might, he just can't get past it. He can't get past it. And then he just dies. And then that's just the end. Yeah. And it's awful and, and tragic and terrible. And I feel so bad for him. And, and I'm sorry I made him into a joke. I didn't (laughs) want to do that. Um, but also that Taylor Swift song was pretty funny. (laughs) So I'm kind (laughs) of glad I did it. It's worth it, yeah. Um yeah, God, what a what a what a tragic character. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, Cozen pulls uh, pours one out for him. Uh Imp 
for Regent and Tattletale, glancing at Dinah to be sure she buys it for Taylor. Right. And in in my I secretly never trust Lisa uh, stance, which is what like, people keep accusing me of. Uh-huh. Um, but I just like I, at this point, we don't know that, that Taylor is actually alive. So I read this glance as a little bit of anger escaping from Tattletale um, uh-huh. that, that that at least part of her blames Dinah for putting Taylor on the path that she she ended up taking and, and, and pushing her towards this eventuality. And there was, I, I, I read a little bit of anger under that. And even knowing what we know now that, that, that this is specifically to posture to convince Dinah that that Taylor is dead, truly dead. I still think there's a bit of that in here. But I'm curious I, what you think. Yeah, I think I remember having that same sense of, you know, the first time you're reading it, you parse it a certain way. You parse it as like as, as I'm pouring out a, an offering to my f- dead friend, I'm I'm glaring at the person who who's responsible for this in a way. Yeah. Um, and you know, Dinah is sort of responsible for it. Um, but uh, you know, she also saved the world. So yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Details. Right. Um, so, and then of course, when you read it again later, you see that there's another level to it, but it could be both. I'd like the ambiguity of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we switch perspectives again and the teenager enters the mall and psychs herself up filled with trepidation, trepidation, and asks to take a seat at Annette Hebert's table. <sighs> dun, dun, dun. No. So surprising. Did I do good? Was that believable? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, you know, the cool thing about like going back and reading this is always fun. And, and it, it's funny that like, as we're, as we're leading up to this big reveal, I think Wild Bo is kind of slowly showing his hand a little bit more. Um, we don't ever actually say that, we we never break the non-gender label until she says, I am your daughter. We never break that. But we kind of see the tailor we recognize come out a little bit more and more. We 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 have her specifically mention the heavy clothing that she uses to to shield herself and hide herself, which is reminiscent of, of what a, a younger tailor did. Um we see when she looks across the mall, um she's kind of strategizing and, and looking out for traps and and like that's very much Taylor using her toolbox. So like we're about yeah. to make this big reveal and we're slowly showing a little bit more of, of Taylor's personality before we, before we make this, this reveal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it just helps that when the reveal is made, we're not like completely like what? That doesn't make sense. We're right. like, oh, yeah, this, this feels like her already. So now Taylor in the third person tells Annette that she's her daughter from Bet, and that her alternate self is dead. Annette takes a few beats to come to grips with this idea. Neither is really sure what to say to the other. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can blame them for that. Hi, you're my mom from another universe. Yeah. Um, you're dead over there. Sorry. Right. At least at least this Annette knows that there's such a thing as other universes. Yeah, but, at uh, least yeah, that's not it. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, still a mind job. Okay, so so now that we know that this is Taylor, I wanted to talk to you about doing this in third person and the decision yeah. to do this in third person because this is the only chapter in the entire book, I believe, I'm 99% sure on, that we are seeing things from Taylor's point of view, but we are not inside her head. We are, we are external to her inner monologue. Um, and I think, you know, the, the cynic in you could say, 
we did this just to mask who she is. But yeah. I think it's more than that. I think it's it's we are slowly exiting the world, right? This is the last chapter. We are slowly like closing the door on the world of of parahumans on the world of worm. And as we do that, we're kind of we're kind of slowly leaving Taylor. So we're 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 kind of releasing Taylor into this new existence, into this new world. And so we are a little bit a little bit further removed from her. She's not the same person that we saw throughout all these arcs. She's different. She's in a different world, has different goals, is trying to figure out a different person. She ha- she doesn't have her powers anymore. Um, and, and I think switching perspectives like that really reinforces that. Yeah, she doesn't have her powers anymore and she doesn't have a shard monkeying with her brain anymore. Right. And uh, in a certain sense, that makes her a different person because even from the moment we met her, she was... She was Taylor plus Shard. Right. She wasn't. She wasn't a human. She was a parahuman. And now, you know, we don't know exactly how they sealed her power away um, in any in, in any detail. Right. Um, but this does seem like it's just a, a person now. Yeah, and I think it really reinforces that that now she is seen from the perspective of every other character um, that that hasn't been her. Now we are seeing Taylor just like we see Golem and just like we see lisa and and that 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 shows the shift yeah i like this idea of what you said that we're kind of like backing out of the story like we're zooming out almost yeah yeah that's nice yeah um so she she explains you know what what her what her life has been like and and i'm just going to read a bit uh a lot happened my mom died i had a hell of a time with high school i fell in with a bad crowd and my dad and i parted ways over and over again, I'd think back to the advice my mom gave me for a compass, for a way to frame it all. Don't, don't worry. I'm not expecting that kind of thing from you. I don't want to put that in, on, they want to put you on the spot. The thing is, now it's all over. And before I came here, someone asked me to make a choice. And I, I love that little speech because it's all framed in a way that has nothing to do with, with powers. And, and it goes right. on a, a choice, life and death, or so I thought. I chose death. And she gave me life, and I'm still trying to reconcile why. I'm not sure I understand. Does this have something to do with Annette waggles her fingers? Powers? No. It's about regret and coming to terms with it all. You're only 18. Why are you worrying about something like that at this stage? Because I'm done. My life is over for all intents and purposes. No matter how hard I try from here on out, I'll never do anything one ten thousandth as important as what I was doing before. And I like that because I, I like specifically that she says, is this about powers? No, it's about regret. You know, it, it's and, yeah. and for, for Taylor, it's like, no, this is not about this is not about powers. This, yeah, powers were yeah. involved, but that's not important. Yeah. Worm guys, worm is not about powers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> correct. It's the means. It's the means to telling a story about people. And yeah, yeah I, I absolutely agree. And I love this. I love I chose death and they gave me life. And now. I have to figure out what to do with that. What does that mean? What do I, what do I do now? Who, who am I now? And like that sentiment, my life is over for all intents and purposes. Like I'll never do anything one ten thousandth as important as what I was doing before. I think that's true on a very basic level, but I also think that's a, not a great outlook on things. It's it's like, like I understand what she means that, that she is in the rare situation as as a person at 18 year old 
18 years old has definitely 100% accomplished the greatest thing they will ever accomplish in their life. And therefore they're, they're forced to look back on their life at such a young age, but you've got so many more years left Taylor. And I think that's what, what Annette ends up literally saying to her is like, you've got so much time left to figure all this stuff out. Your life is not over. That part of your life is over. Yeah. And another thing I would say as a jaded adult is, who cares if you'll never do anything as important as what you're doing before? Like right. important is not, is not something that your brain actually registers uh, right. as strongly as you might think, especially when you're young, you think you want to do something important. And it's like, actually that's, you don't have an intrinsic important detector. You have an intrinsic, like, do I have a handful of friends who care about me detector? Right. Uh, and, and that's way more important actually. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Annette, pulls Taylor into a hug when the girl starts to cry and Taylor tells Annette that she was a monster that the weight of regret of all her decisions presses down on her. That's tough. Yeah. Um, And I think this is what you and I were talking about when, when we were talking about Taylor's decisions, Matt, and, and, and even, even if they were, you know, the right thing to do at the time, the, the, the morally, right thing to do from a certain view of morality she's now forced to sit here at the end and live with it and live with it yeah you you know shooting shooting a toddler might have been the right thing to do it might have been but now you have to be the person that shot a toddler taking taking over all these people might have been the right thing to do but now you have to live with the fact that you forced thousands of people to their deaths yeah and and yeah. How do you how do you live with that? How do you like the greater good sounds great, but what about tomorrow? Right. If, if she's telling herself I did the right thing and and that's not doing anything for her, then yeah. then th- that's what this is really all about. It's about that guilt that isn't quenched by the idea that you did all you could, you did the best you could. So people have to face every day. Actually, people do the best they could, and, it, and yeah. it's not enough. Yeah, and that doesn't mean oh, oh, you don't have to feel any guilt. Then you still feel it. Yeah, you can't stop. You can't stop from feeling it. It's it's the weight of the decisions is pressing down on her. It's crushing. It's it's debilitating. And how how do you get past this? What do you do? And I think what the book is is saying what 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 we're saying in this moment is you have to turn to the people that love you. And you have, yeah. you have to, if, if the weight of everything is crushing down on you, you need someone else to, to help you hold it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and here they, you know, they, uh, Taylor decides she wants to, to, to back off a little bit. And, uh, she does want to see her, her, her alternate dimension mom again, but maybe next time they'll talk about something lighter, maybe about books, which, which is, is God. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> yes. My heart. Oh, my yeah. heart. So she walks over to her dad, who, by the way, is not dead, according to this interpretation. Yeah. Um, and thinks that she sees Alec in the crowd. Yeah. That's another thing. That's that, another thing. That, 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 plausible. Plausible that this could just be a thing that happened in a real world. Yeah. Another very, kind very of plausible. Surreal, surreal element. Very coincidental. Yeah. So the undersiders back on, you know, we switched perspective back. The undersiders discuss whether to move against teacher with Tattletail urging caution. 
As they leave, Tattletail says one major reason for the meeting was to convince Dinah that Taylor was dead. Um, so it's very cleverly, ambiguously worded here where it's never like we're telling Dinah the factual truth that Taylor is dead, but it's also not, it's also not worded quite as, as strictly as like we're deceiving T- uh, Dinah into thinking right. Taylor is dead. It's, right. it's just enough kind of linguistic wiggle, wiggle room to support this alternate interpretation. <laughs> right. And, and, and it could be something entirely different where it's, she, where, you know, I, I, you know, where Tattletail has her hooked up to a tinker dream machine in the, in the closet. And, uh, that they're just trying to convince Dinah that she's dead so that she won't, you know, look in the closet. Uh, yeah. But who knows? Uh, and, and, you know, but I, I did find this to be where, where Imp said, Imp asks and Taylor and Tattletail answers, I'll keep looking after things in that department if that's cool. And I'm kind of like, well, what can that mean other than, there's something to look after, right? Right. Come right. On. If yeah. she's just dead, what? Yeah. And, and like, so I, up until this point, on my first read through, I had I had basically convinced myself that this was all a dream or something, and and none of what mm-hmm. we were seeing was actually true. But it was at this point that I really started going, okay, like there's something there's something else going on here, and and you're kind of forced to accept at least a version of this reality because yeah, why like why would they talk like this? If there was nothing there. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, some things up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as, uh, as she walks away with her dad, Taylor touches her, her head where the healed over bullet wounds can be felt. She doesn't know what happened. She just knows that her power is locked away now, but seeing the Alec lookalike made her wonder if she's dead, uh, which is a little subtle hint that she might be, I guess she and her dad head off to lunch together, closing the loop that started in the first line of the novel. Which is just beautiful. I love when you figured that out and you like lost your mind. <laughs> I'm not even sh- I'm not even sure if it's a real thing to figure out, but uh, it, it, the first line of the novel is uh, is uh, is uh, you know it includes the, the an part. Hour, and, an hour was and, too long for yeah, lunch. An hour was too long for lunch, and then and then in this, earlier in this chapter, Annette says that her lunch break is an hour and twenty minutes or something. Which so. Wildbo is that a Canada thing? Because our lunches are not an hour and twenty minutes. No, we're we're chained to our desks. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, she and her dad had off the lunch, and she reflects on how she's done her share. She doesn't need to worry about the bigger concerns of the world, but she's still plagued by guilt and by trauma. She spoke her thoughts aloud. I think there's a lot of stuff bothering me. Only natural, her father said very carefully. But I've dealt with worse. If it comes down to it, if this is all I have to worry about, I can maybe deal. I could maybe learn to be okay. I think that's all of us can hope for. Oh, God damn it. I think that's all any of us can hope for. You blew it. Said, it was such a beautiful it. moment. Yeah, you blew you it. Go ahead, you go ahead and edit that, Scott. I'm not going to do it. Everyone's going to hear. Everyone's going to hear. God damn it. Um, it's my favorite part of the story. It is. This is. This is. I mean, like. I'm I'm at a loss of, of for words right now, which is not great on a podcast. But there, this is everything. This is I mean, first first yeah. we have our big idea of for the first time in her life, Taylor says, "I can let someone else deal with it." I, like this idea that if if someone ever comes looking for trouble, that can be someone else's problem, and that is such a huge huge revelation for Taylor, a, a huge ad- admission of. I don't need to be the one solving this problem. I don't need to be the one doing this. 
And then we have these, these floor closing lines here that, that stuff is bothering me only natural. And, and this, this admission that if this is all, if this is all I have to worry about, which it's, it's quite a lot. Like it's like, like, I guess in the grand scheme of, of parahuman life, dealing with the guilt of taking over every single cape in the known universes um, is small potatoes, but I love this idea that if this is it, if I can focus on dealing with this, I can, I can get past this. I can move past my trauma. I can move past my past and, and find a way forward, find a path to happiness. Yeah. I think that's all any of us can hope for. Yeah. I think that's, that's perfect. And that's, I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it's beautifully just true to say that that is, that is all that any of us can hope for. We're all, we're all lost in this mess of life and none of us know what we're doing and nobody can give us any useful advice and we struggle our way through. Um, but if, if it comes down to it, if, if we're, if we're left, if if we have, if we have a bit of support from other people and we're not constantly being thrown from disaster to disaster, then if that's all we have to worry about, if all we have to worry about is struggling against ourselves instead of struggling against the world, then yeah, I think we can maybe learn to be okay. And and I think that's, uh, I think that is all of us, all any of us can hope for. Yeah. That's um, beautiful. And I think the the fact that her, her power is healed away is what makes this, you know, possible in a certain way because now she's, and, and I don't just mean that now she's not going to be compelled to use it to help people. I mean, um, if the powers are a metaphor for trauma, her trauma is essentially her, her older, her oldest trauma is essentially sealed away. Yeah. The not, OG, not like the OG trauma. Yeah. And she, she generated her herself a whole lot of new trauma, um, on the way, I think. And, and, and guilt, more guilt than trauma, actually, you know, they're, they're, they're not the same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, she, I, I think, I think, you know, if this is real, or if this is a dream that allows her some kind of continuity of being able to heal, um, then I think, I think that, I think that this character can be okay. And that's remarkably better than, uh, than, uh, being a murdered alien God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, so uh, I, there, we've talked about this and there's a lot of debate amongst the readers of this book that, that what, what is the true ending? Is this all really happening? Is this a dream, a a simulation in a tinker machine? Is this like a death illusion, like death hallucination? Um, is it the afterlife? You know, when it comes down to it, I don't think I care. I, I really, I really don't think I care. I think even if this isn't real, it's, if it's not physically real, it's closure for Taylor. It's a silver lining, a happy ending of sorts for a character who's been through so much and deserves peace, deserves a path to something better. And yeah, no matter what your interpretation of what's real and what isn't, that's what this is presenting. Yeah, I think it's more satisfying closure than than the way she ends arc thirty, which is yeah, 
which is just depressing. Like, it's yeah. just like, okay, she sacrificed everything and now she's dead. Yep. And it's interesting um, <laughs> because I think one of the reasons, like, if you if you look at this as objectively as possible, there's really, like, it, it is it is a little ambiguous, but it's not super ambiguous. Like, yeah. There's nothing that's like flat out contradictory that really makes you say, no, this is definitely a dream. And I think what's happening here is this book conditions us to not accept good things happening. <laughs> like, yeah. Like we are conditioned by this book to assume that things are going to get worse. There's going to be more yeah. escalation. There's going to be more violence. There's going to be more sadness. And, and, and here we are at the end of it and we almost can't accept it we almost look at this and say this has this can't be real because this has never happened in the course of the story and and maybe like and that's that's almost why i think it is real because it's like okay yeah we've never had this over the course of the story but the story is is over now it's done this now we can finally have peace yeah i think it's a really cool like meta trick also because Taylor is in the same frame of mind as we are at this point. She she also is con- is conditioned to think that everything is going to go wrong, especially at right. lunchtime, because um, everything always goes wrong at lunchtime for Taylor. And and she you know she's she's looking for ambushes when she goes to talk to Annette, um, and and she she even wonders if she might be dead. Like she wonders that. Right. Um, it's right. not just it's not just the readers. It's even the character in the moment. Um, lampshading it and uh yeah that's it. so one thing that's interesting to me about the the whole question of whether this is real or not is that not only not only do people have different interpretations that they prefer um they have different interpretations that they would rather it be like i i have said pretty straight up throughout this episode um i wanted taylor to be alive I would have been crushed if this ended with no no interlude referencing Taylor being alive. I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have like ruined worm for me or anything like that, but I I would have been like ah, you know like yeah I I, yeah. I would have had a different feeling about it and some people legitimately want her to be dead or dreaming or or, or something else. Mm-hmm. Like they 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 prefer it that way and I think that's really fascinating that you can have an ending that that works that way for people where, where they take away from the ending what what works for them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the author doesn't say, you know, oh, well, actually it's uh, like, it's, it's, it's allowed to be what you need it to be, I think. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's, I think the best endings are that way. And I, and I, I think, I think it, it's hard not to read into these last lines as Taylor almost herself in a meta way, like you said, coming to the, the the acceptance that maybe I am dead. Maybe this is all a dream. Maybe this isn't real, but I could still maybe learn to be okay. So she's mm-hmm. almost declaring that maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's okay that it's ambiguous. It's okay that we don't know the reader. It's okay that Taylor doesn't know the person, but it's still a path to being okay. And yeah. that's... It's wonderful. Yeah. And that's Worm. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's, we're done. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, so why don't you um, wrap up your final 
final speculations other than the ones that are going to be wrapped up in uh in word of god yeah so so we got three um that we know for sure at least i said legend was going to die a long time ago um he's not he's alive he's very much still alive um i doubled down on Gru being dead and i was right this time so yay Um, yay (laughs) Uh, and lastly, I said the Seamurg is creating a new Endbringer. Um, no, I was wrong. Um, she was creating something, so I was I was on the right track. But I forgot about those daddy issues. That, that yeah. It, uh, so. Yeah. So that's and, that's and it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that uh, there are some things actually that will be resolved in the Word of God. So uh, you can look forward to that. Yeah, that's awesome. And then we'll do. I think we'll do a final like percentage right wrong count at the end. That'll be fun. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that will wrap up our coverage of Worm. Wow. Yeah. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions on this wild and crazy ride. Please let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Um, We are obviously not going to be live tweeting anything uh, anytime soon. Uh, got a couple weeks off and then we're, we're, we're starting up on, uh, ward pre stuff in a few weeks. So just look for some announcements on, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to be live tweeting that. I, I, I guess while we're waiting to catch up, I'll just keep the format similar and go ahead and do that while I'm doing it. So, um, it's going to be the same Twitter account. We're changing the name of the podcast, but I think all that stuff's going to say the same cause it's simpler. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, my personal Twitter is at ScottDaily85, and Matt's is at MordenaTeapot. That's right. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, uh, soon to be We've Got Ward, uh, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, over on the other channel, you'll find Matt and I's detailed and spoiler-filled discussion of The Last Jedi, as well as the audio from our book club discussion last Friday of The Secret Place. Those were some some great episodes, so check those out. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> two, two uh, really fun episodes in a row, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you like any of these other shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Films. Consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Special thanks to new Planeteers, uh, Aaron and Dominic at the $1 level, Kira at the $5 level, Rock Skills Kids at the $150 level, Drivemaster at the $250 level, Michael at the $5 level, and Ethan at the $5 level. And... Uh, Captain Planet Daniel at the $10 level. Also, speaking of Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he is the guy that made this whole thing possible. Oh, you said it in past tense. That's sad. <laughs> um, yeah, if you if you can't afford it to pledge right now or just waiting until we start our next big project right around the corner, that's absolutely fine. But you can still help us by leaving tiny dolls of us everywhere. Um, that have our website written on them. Um, <laughs> it's not at all weird. You should make that. I should say these things out loud before I write them down <laughs> because I write them down and then I have to say them and I'm like, Scott, that's creepy. Um, or you could head all over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. 
uh, that really helps us out and gets us exposure. This week's spotlight review comes from Stranker, who gives us five stars and says, We've Got Worm goes into a level of detail in their analysis that you don't see in many other places. Seeing Scott and Matt talk about the ins and outs of Worms and its characters changed how I look not just the looked at not just the story but all stories in general since listening to we've got worm i've started becoming more analytical of stories i read in a similar way i read in a similar way because of this i pick up on things and i never would have in the past we've got worm is a fantastic podcast about a fantastic story i highly recommend that anyone who is a fan of worm check it out um that's awesome that's really great and i'm glad i'm glad you like the podcast but i'm even more glad that you are you are looking at and, and analyzing stories in a, in a new and different kind of way. That's really like, I think our main goal behind this whole thing is to, is to hopefully get people to, to look at stories and, and learn how they work and what they do and analyze them and, and see things in them that, that they never saw before. So that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, even me, I think, I, I don't know if I knew that I could talk about worm for 87 hours um, is that, but how, clearly is that I, how long it's been? Uh, oh approximately, yeah, approximately, and and that uh, that tells me that I could probably stand, you know, as, as deep as you've dug on a story, you can probably dig deeper. You know? Oh yeah, oh like, yeah, and and that's that's actually an incredibly fun and exciting thought to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it for that's it for us this week. Reminder that we're taking off next week for the Christmas holiday. So the next episode will be coming to you on Wednesday, January 3rd. We're going to be covering a curated selection of Wild Bo's Words of God, as well as answering all of your questions on our fourth mailbag. Don't forget to send those in. It's the final episode of We've Got Worm coming at you. Oh, my God. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, his name is my name too. Whenever we go out, the people always shout, look, there goes John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Ba la 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 la, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, his name is my name too. Whenever we go out, the people always shout, look, there goes John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Ba la 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 la. Merry Christmas, everybody.